When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Of the New York Metropolitans, um, and uh, I'm very excited about where the New York Mets are looking right now. Uh, they were off last night, but uh, it looks they're playing the Marlins tomorrow. But we're going to the playoffs. We didn't get there last year, which we should have. We were in first place. I, I know people don't like the term "we" when you apply to a sports team, and you're right. It's silly. I'm not playing the games, and I'm not part of management. I I, I don't know. I just can't help myself but say "we." Because I've been, just been, I feel like I've been a part of the New York Metropolitan Fan Nation for my whole life. So I can't help but say we. I'm excited that the Mets will be going to the playoffs. They should have been there last year. And, uh, you know, the Mets history, with two major exceptions, has been littered with disappointment. And I hope we're not setting ourselves up for disappointment this year, but I'm excited. Now, another thing about being a Mets fan is you know the name Ron Hunt. Ron Hunt was a Major League Baseball player in the 60s and the 70s, and he played for the Mets for at least part of his career. I know he played for the Dodgers, the Giants, some other teams as well. And in 1971, when he was with the Montreal Expos, he actually set a single-season record for being hit by more pitches than any other player. That was sort of his thing. He was, his motto was, quote, some people give their bodies to science, I give mine to baseball. He was hit by pitches more often than anyone during his playing days. He led the National League in getting hit by pitches in each of his final seven major league seasons. I mean, he was hit by pitches all the time. And um, it's interesting because now... You know, Ron Hunt would would lead the league in getting hit by pitches with 25 pitches, 26 pitches, 16 pitches, 24 pitches. Think about that. 16 pitches in 1974, getting hit by the pitch 16 times. That led the league in getting hit by the pitch. Think about that. Well, let's look at where we are right now in terms of baseball and getting hit by the pitch. And then I want to ask you my favorite question, which is always the same one. Why? The New York Metropolitans, it's always the Mets. The New York Metropolitans set a modern Major League Baseball record last week with 106 batters hit by pitches this season. 
So baseball is struggling with a surge in what they call bean balls over the last few seasons, putting players at a very serious risk of injury. Now, some of these players wear so so much gear that, um, you know, it doesn't look like they could be hurt by some of these pitches, but a lot of players don't. The three highest hit-by-pitch totals in the modern era have all occurred in the last two years with the Reds and the Dodgers, uh, the Reds having 105 and the Dodgers 104. Uh, and there's a lot of theories as to why these numbers are up. And I'd love to know what you think this is. Now, we actually have a new phone number today because we were having some uh, technical issues on our old phone number. So our phone number for the day is 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. And if you're like me and you're a guy that likes to spell things out, our number is actually spelled out as TUT, T-U-T, like King Tut, Tut Wow Gigs. So you can call us at uh, 833-969-4447 or Tut Wow Gigs. But um, there's a lot of theories as to why this is happening. Some people say it's more inside pitches. Some people say it's the increased velocity of breaking balls. And this is something that I wouldn't have thought of until an article I read on this yesterday. The a ban in baseball on sticky stuff that helps pitchers improve their control. Without this sticky stuff, pitchers lose control of some of their pitches and it ends up hitting some batters. So um, Mark Kana, who has been hit, who's plays for the Mets, and he leads the league in getting hit by the pitch, he has been get hit by the pitch 24 times this season. What he says is, I'm closer to the plate and I don't move. Of course it's the Mets <laughs> that break this record, right? So I'd love to know your thoughts as to why. I thought that was kind of interesting. But one of the stories that I think is much sadder and potentially has much greater, far wider reaching implications for the future of sports in this country and is certainly much more painful is what we're seeing um, in New Jersey. A New Jersey high school football player has died nearly two weeks after he was critically injured in a game. The player's name was Xavier McLean. He was a high school football player, 16 years old, sophomore, playing for the Linden Tigers varsity boys football team. And he suffered a head injury during a game on September 9th. And now he's dead. And it's This is just, to me, so sad. So sad. Xavier McLean's parents told um, WABC-TV they regularly attended their son's games but missed the one where he was injured, something they say they will have to live with. Quote, he was in every sport social, bright, gifted, and talented, and I'm never going to see him graduate from high school. He was only 16. He had his whole life ahead of him. Uh, that's what his father said, adding that he hopes another player, another injury doesn't happen to any other player. The mayor of Linden, New Jersey, Derek Armstead, talked about Xavier McClain. 
I watched him and his brother grow up. Uh, uh, we were good friends with the mother and father, Norman and Lisa McLean. Um, they were very active in sports in town, um, football, baseball, basketball, good athletes, um, and, and, and very nice young men. And we've covered the issue of youth football before. And I'm wondering, look, there's a lot of people that play football, tackle football every day in New Jersey. But is that he died following a head injury? Should we look at taking the tackle out of football, at least for youth? What do you think? Um, eight eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. That's uh, eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. I don't know enough about the details of how he suffered his head injury, but um, this is uh, really just so sad. And unfortunately, this is far too common. It's still relatively rare in sports in general. And it's uh, but it's far too common. He sustained this injury while returning a kickoff at the start of the game on September 9th. Uh, Witnesses at the game who couldn't speak about the incident publicly said that the game that what looked like to them is that the play stopped and an ambulance took took to the Linden High School sideline for about 10 minutes and they could tell immediately that there was something that there was something wrong and it's not just youth football where people are raising the questions about the future of tackling the NFL the leading professional sports football league is ending the tackle pro bowl now the pro bowl if you don't follow football is essentially the uh, their version of the all-star game Unlike a lot of the other sports where the All-Star game takes place in the middle of the season, in football, the uh, the All-Star game, they call it the Pro Bowl, takes place right after the Super Bowl. It's kind of a fun event. It's, uh, it's in Hawaii. It's a lot of fun. And there's been a long debate about the usefulness of the Pro Bowl in its current form. And that intensified earlier this year when the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, said the game doesn't work and we need to find another way to celebrate the players. Because keep in mind, this is the best players in the AFC versus the best players in the NFC, and they go at it, and it's it's a fun event. There have been musings about adapting the Pro Bowl to something else to lower the risk of injuries in particular, but none really took hold. This time, the league has gone through with a dramatic change. Apparently, the Pro Bowl is done. And instead of a tackle football game, it's going to be replaced with a with the Pro Bowl games, a week of skills competition capped off with a flag football game on the Sunday, um, which will take place on February 5th, 2023 at Las Vegas Allegiant Stadium this year. And apparently Peyton Manning is involved in producing this whole week of festivities. So even the NFL has done away with tackling on the Pro Bowl, and now they're making it a flag football event. If you're not familiar with flag football, if you if you grab a flag from off a player's uniform, that counts as a tackle. Curious what you think about this. 
Is this the sissification of professional sports? Or is this a recognition that maybe tackle football leads to injuries far too often? Um, I would not encourage my son, if he wants to pursue this, to play tackle football as a youth. Uh, I would have no problem with him playing touch football or tag football. But uh, I am concerned about all these players which suffer who suffer from head injuries because of tackle football. So I'd love for you to weigh in on this, and I'd love for somebody to offer some explanation as to why so many baseball players are getting hit with the pitch in Major League Baseball this year. What is it about? So our phone number is 833-969-4447. Not our usual phone number. Again, that's 833-969-4447. And if you are somebody that prefers to dial uh, a a word rather than a phone number, you can do so at tutwowgigs. That is tutwowgigs. Uh, you might have already guessed by the delay in uh, playing actualities that our normal engineer, uh, Matt Blaze, is back in action today. Matt Blaze, welcome back. We heard you were delay. under the weather. What do you mean delay? Well, I mean, you know, if people have time to go out for a cup of coffee between the time <laughs> I execute a cut and by the time it's played, then, you know, that's a delay. But um, we're happy to have you back Thank nonetheless. You. Uh, so what was your issue? You just had a cold? Well, I stayed home. Good. No, I praised you on air. I thought that was very responsible of you. I wasn't feeling well. Good. Everybody that, should do that. And, you know, there has been times that I have come in right. when yeah. I no. would have been no a little bit sick. Yeah. No need but this was one of those where I was like, nah, I can't come in today. Yeah. Uh, so I stayed home and so, now I'm fine. But you had a cold. Yeah. All right. So yeah. well, you, well, you sound good. Glad you're back. Uh, I heard uh, Alex Barnard coughing. As he was Uh-oh. editing, did you see that? Did you hear <laughs> no, that at all? I, I did not hear that. Uh, so I'm hoping that uh, I would have hoped that your commitment to keeping your coworkers safe was contagious, but uh, apparently Alex Barnard didn't heed yeah. that example. And, and the last time I had a cold, it was from Alex Barnard. That makes sense. Expect makes sense. Alex Barnard to make an appearance shortly. Oh, that's no doubt about. No <laughs> Running doubt down about the it. hallway with his headphones. Yeah, no, he and, uh, <laughs> he and Chris from the Catskills and John from Brooklyn, the three of them coming down, scurrying their way down. All right, 833-969-4447. Obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about space on this show. Today was a big day. Um, I, I am a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to the motives about why NASA did what it did yesterday. We talked, we've been talking about this. Essentially, what NASA did was they tried to use a spaceship to divert an asteroid, okay? Was it successful? What does it mean? Do we know if it was successful yet? Those are a few of the questions we're going to ask Dr. Sky, a.k.a. Steve Cates, coming up and in about 40 minutes. There is nobody that knows more about space than Dr. Sky. Well, actually, there might be people that know more about space than Dr. Sky, but there's nobody that sounds better talking about space than Dr. Sky. It's funny. I was uh, at the Tunnel to Towers race on whatever day that was, Sunday. And so went out with my my friends uh, Tommy and Monica for a beer after the race. I mean, we're there, right? You, and Monica said, as we're, we're walking through the Hewell Carry Tunnel, she said, you know, really hit the spot right about now, a real cold beer. And I agreed. So we went out, we got a cold beer and at an Irish pub uh, on the other side of the tunnel. And we're talking about the show. 
And Tommy says, I got to tell you, you know who my favorite guest is? Dr. Sky. And I said, I don't blame you. I think you might be my favorite guest as well. And Monica, who doesn't, she's not awake at these hours. She keeps conventional hours and she's not prudent enough to listen to the podcast on a regular basis. She said, oh, who's Dr. Sky? And Tommy explained exactly who Dr. Sky is and why he's such a fan favorite. And I agreed with everything he said. So I'm excited that he's coming back. And he may be playing a more bro- a broader role on the ne- network sometime soon. So we'll see where that goes. 833-969-4447. Want to ask your opinion on two questions. One, why are so many players being hit with pitches? Two, in light of the fact that a 16-year-old has ki- has been has died after being injured in a football game, in light of the fact that even the NFL is moving away from tackle football, at least as it relates to the Pro Bowl, is it time to do away with tackling in football? Donald Trump has had some very vocal criticisms of that idea, as has uh, Fred Dreyer and others. But is this inevitable? What do you think? 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Chris on Staten Island. Hello, Chris. Hey, uh, Frank, I just wanted to say, uh, number one, I think the reason why players are getting hit by pitches is what you said. There's more equipment, so they're able to hang in there Mm -hmm. a lot longer than normally would. And next thing you know, boom, and, uh, you know, there's no more trainer running out and spraying the guy's uh, wrists like they did years ago. Usually he's wrapped up with a bandage or, you know, a pad or something. And And your discussion regarding football I, I think it's not specification. There's no one more alpha male that we had in this country than Teddy Roosevelt. And even he, when he was president, he was going to bar football from being played on college campuses because it was so violent. And he made them change the rules back then. And you've seen an evolution of the game throughout the years where there's been a lot of changes. And there's been quite a few flag footballs, a lot of flag, uh, co-ed flag football leagues now, too. So... They're trying, but I think the risk in the contact sport is always going to be there for unfortunate oh, sure, sure. circumstance, you know. But I think they have tried to lay the foundation for kids learning, you know, basic fundamentals to football and, uh, you know, not getting hurt at such a young age. Yeah, and I love, obviously, that you mentioned my hero, Teddy Roosevelt, because your your remembrance or your recollection of the history is exactly right. And thank you, Chris. If people don't know what Chris is talking about— Theodore, uh, uh, football 117 years ago, uh, Donald Trump and others think that football um, has was brutal 15 years ago and there were really good hits 15 years ago. You should have been around in 1905. You want to know what was going, going on in 1905? 1905 alone, at least 18 people died and more than 150 were injured, seriously injured, playing football. At least 45 football players died from 1900 to October of 1905. Many from internal injuries, broken ba- broken necks, concussions, broken backs, all sorts of things. And they said, this was from the Washington Post, October 15th, 1905, nearly every death may be tra- traced to unnecessary roughness picked up unconscious from beneath a mass of other players, it was generally found that the victim had been kicked in the head or stomach so as to cause internal injuries or concussion of the brain. See, football at the turn of the 20th century was a very different game. It was more like rugby 
The ball was roughly the size of a watermelon. Forward passes were not allowed. Uh, that So that led to short lateral tosses, large scrums of players jockey, jockeying for the ball, and really vicious hits. Now, Theodore Roosevelt loved football. He was a huge fan. And apparently he thought being roughed up was not necessarily a bad thing. He said, I believe in outdoor games, and I do not mind in the least that they are rough games or that those who take part in them are occasionally injured. But he was he recognized the fact that if people kept dying, football was going to be gone. So he summoned the... Um, Coaches and the athletic advisors from the big football schools at the time, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, summoned them to the White House, and he said, you guys got to figure out a way to make this game safer, or I'm going to ban it. They didn't know if he had the authority to ban it, but they didn't want to find out. So um, it's a great point that you make. We're going to continue in just a moment. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Singing, you'll never walk alone. Ain't that the truth? Uh, talking about um, getting hit by the pitch in baseball and talking about whether or not football has just become too dangerous, not only for youth, but adults. Give me your thoughts. 833-969-4447. We are a half hour away from the great Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, who, even though he's not really a PhD, he's not technically a doctor, he knows a lot about space and he's able to put things in a way that laymen like me can understand, which I appreciate. Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hey, um, on baseball, I believe maybe there's more new rivalries out there that are going after each other. And the pitches, I think they take it a little more personal, too serious, not just at the individual, but at certain teams, you know, not liking the other team at all. So, Football, I'm inclined to believe that the equipment is not as durable as the pros for the schools. If not, why not? Maybe the whistles are too slow, allowing allowing piling on. And they should they should do this. No more stiff arming, tackle only from the waist down. 
And in the 70s, a guy named Jack Tatum hit a guy named Dal Stingley, paralyzed him, never apologized. The machoism has got to be contained, too, in the sport. All right, That's so your, your, your solution is to reform the way tackling is permitted. Yeah, from the waist down only and no stiff arming straight out like that because that can hurt a person, too. You can push a, yeah, a person's no, head back too much. That's for sure. That's for sure. Hey, thank you for gazing. And, and no, go ahead. Okay. No, okay. go ahead. You have I'm a good. last comment? Thank go ahead. No. no, I was going to say, and, and if you make it waist down, there's no reason for the stiff arm. Right. You know? So one is not taken from the other. It's just about even, Stephen, to me. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you. 833-969-4447. 833-969-4447. John is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Hello, John. Yes, hi. How are you, Frank? Great. Thanks. Hey, I just wanted to make a comment. I'm getting away from the injuries for a second. You mentioned Ron Hunt at the beginning of the show. Um, like you, I've been a lifelong Mets fan. Ron My sympathies. Hunt was the first Mets. <laughs> Ron Hunt was the first Mets star. He was the first Met to be voted um, as a starter in the All-Star game. That was in 1964. He was the runner-up for Rookie of the Year to Pete Rose um, in 1963. A great, um, scrappy player, and I'm, I'm happy that you brought out the memory about him. Appreciate that. Oh, sure. I'm a big. Uh, I never really saw Ron Hunt play, um, you know, live. But uh, I'm a big fan of his contributions to the world of baseball. His style of play is exactly, you know, how I style myself as a ball player. So thank you for that, uh, John. Appreciate it. Well, hopefully, uh, w- you know, hopefully I'll see you at the uh, World Series victory parade this year. Sounds good. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, 833-969-4447. That's uh, 833-969-4447. Let me tell you a little bit about what's coming up, not only today, but uh, in the week. We are – so on Wednesday, we were going to try and have our callers in studio that had won the uh, other side of Governor's Island. I think we're going to – Postpone that a week for a few reasons. Uh, I just got over a cold. Matt Blaze is supposedly over his cold. And so w- M- Alex Barnard is coughing up a lung. He sounds like Doc Holliday. We don't want to get any of the callers sick by inviting them up to the studio. Imagine that if, you know, what kind of prize is that? I won the prize to get 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 Alex Barnard's cough, Frank Marano's runny nose. And uh, so we would figure give everybody a week here to heal. And uh, then we'll get to promote it a little bit more. And we'll get to figure out some more fun things to do with the listeners. So we're going to do that, I think, probably Tuesday or Wednesday, probably Tuesday of next week. So uh, we're in the process of working on the logistics with all that. Also, uh, Thursday, either Wednesday or Thursday, technically, is the two-year anniversary of this show. So I thought it might be fun tomorrow to do some anniversary related stuff i'm not sure exactly what we'll do yet but i thought we'll uh we'll do definitely do something fun see john gambling was on our first show and he was on our one year anniversary as well and i thought it might be fun to have john gambling back but apparently he's on vacation in europe so he just emailed me back he said oh no i'm not going to be back till thursday and i uh hoped that he would say I had hoped that he would say, well, because I'm actually in a time zone that's a little more convenient for being on in your hours, 
I'll call in from from Europe. But he didn't say that. I said, oh, you know, sorry to bother you on your vacation. And look, I get I get that. You know, John's retired now. He doesn't want to do calls like this on his vacation. So so that's uh, we'll we'll have him on. I don't know, maybe Friday or maybe later in the week. Uh, But Nick Pope, who was on our first show and who was on our one year anniversary show, he is going to join us as well uh, to talk about a wide variety of subjects. So he'll be here tomorrow. And then um, I just was watching CNN on one of the monitors here. They are previewing what is going to go down on Thursday, on Wednesday, with the January 6th committee and Roger Stone. Roger is going to be on this program to react to it with us exclusively on Thursday. So that's going to be really interesting. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Yes. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Tomorrow. Um, I got it. Yeah, I, I can relate to uh, the viciousness of football. You know, um, uh, I'll give you an example, and it's not just my son. When my son was returning kickoffs in high school, my my my, thro- my heart was in my throat. And other friends whose sons were returning kickoffs, crazy. They have to do away with kickoffs because everyone's at full throttle and helmet to helmet, uh, crazy. You know, I was telling Ken, I, I, I was a diamond rat in the dirt. High school, summer ball, college baseball. I got my bell rung many times. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. We're playing high school ball against East Rockaway. Lefty pitcher, okay, uh, one of the best on Long Island. We beat him late in the game. And he was directed by the Expos. And I heard him tell his teammate, he said, that effing shortstop, I should have thrown one at his head. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, rim shot. And I said to him, I heard I said, hey, Lefty, you do that. Uh, before you deliver that next pitch, Lefty, I'll whirly bird my bat right at your coconut. And the umpire will say, well, you're out of the game. And I'll say, well, I, I know, um, um, uh, um, uh, uh. but you know what? Uh, the guy's name is Tony Gallo. His son is Joey Gallo. Yeah. Wait, uh, Joey Gallo, the baseball player or the gangster? No, 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 no. I keep speaking about gangsters. I don't know. Nothing. No, Joey Gallo, the baseball player. Oh, all right. Well, that's cool. That's cool, Mike. That's cool. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Appreciate that. Uh, we got uh, we got Benny in Manhattan. Hello, Benny. Can you hear me? I think so, Benny. All right, cool. Hey, listen. I'm football listening. is a fantastic game. Right now, to me, college football is like one of the best sport of football right about now. The truth of the fact is, you learn from the coach and 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 and, and, and the ones ahead of you who played like a, a year ahead of you. How to get hit, how to fall, how to get up. You understand how to protect yourself. And the most important thing is football separates man from boy. Well, I, I hear that, right? And that's similar to what um that's similar to what uh what Fred Dreyer has said on to me on the radio before. And I'm sympathetic to that argument. But I'm not that sympathetic when we have a family in New Jersey that just lost their sixteen year old. I mean I mean, I understand that it builds. Listen, build... listen, listen. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely sorry, sir. You're absolutely right. I, I respect that. I, don't, you know, God bless them and their family, sympathies and condolences. You know, but the truth of the fact is, throughout the nation, every year it happens quite a few times. You know, and it's pure accident. It's not done on purpose. No, I'm not saying you know? it's done on purpose. Uh, a- right, absolutely, right, right, right. I, 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 I completely right. get that. I just, um, I'm just wondering if we can minimize the amount of injuries. If there was a movement to uh, to say flag football the way the NFL is doing with the Pro Bowl, but you say that that's not really football, it's not worth doing. 
Well, no, I'm not saying that. But the truth of the fact is you can play flag football, I guess, up to eighth grade, ninth grade, you know. But mm-hmm. after that, it's football, you know. All right. The thing about it is, hey, Frank, one more thing you need to know. Sure. You know, there are a lot of uh, college players and NFL players whose mothers never come to the games. You know that, right? Well, I, I did not know that, but I never really thought yes. about it, honestly. Right. There's about maybe maybe about 15% of the mothers that don't come to the game because they don't want to see their son get hit. Oh, well, I'm not surprised. You know, I uh, I can yeah, understand I'm not, that. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah. I'm not either. I'm not hey. either. My mother was one of them, so I know. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Benny, thanks. Dave is in New Jersey. Hello, Dan- uh, Dave. Frank. Dave. Frank. Dave. Frank. Dave. Hello. How's it going? Sorry? Hello? Hello. Frank? Dave. Anyone? Anyone? Hello? 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 All right. Hello. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Battle of wits there. I think we both lost. I think we both lost. All right. Thank you, Dave. Just call uh, me Frank. All right. Okay. Hey, um, so that's that. Uh, a couple of other interesting things that uh, that I want to get to. We'll continue with your calls in just a minute. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. You can also find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's uh, Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. There was something interesting that um, that I just learned about. It's called Earth Review. Are you up on this? Have you heard about this Earth Review? This is something that I uh, had never even never even heard of before. But they say that it might be a great way to um, relieve boredom <laughs> if you're if you're somebody that's bored. So if um, I'll tell you about it in a second, let me take a quick break. We'll continue with your calls and then I'll tell you about uh, Earth Review and what that exactly is and, you know, if it's something to take advantage of. Some other technology-related news that we'll get to as well. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Here's a question for you parents. As a new parent myself, don't you want to do everything in your power to make sure your children are safe? Of course. Well, choking is just one of those issues that sadly kills a child every five days. Terrifying? Yes. Avoidable? Absolutely. Thankfully, you can get assistance with LifeVac. It's a safe, easy-to-use airway clearance device made in the USA. There was a mom that recently saw her son choking and he stopped breathing. She tried back blows unsuccessfully, and thank God she had a life vac. With just one pump, she was able to remove the sandwich and save her child. There are countless stories like this across the nation, and so many people are forever grateful to Arthur Lee for creating life vac. Choking can take a life in four to seven minutes. Don't let this common tragedy destroy your family. Every home, school, restaurant needs a life vac. Visit LifeVac.net to learn more. That's LifeVac.net. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Lovely One by the Jacksons. If uh, you want to be heard on anything we're talking about, give me a call, 833-969-4447. That's uh, 833-969-4447. Now, a couple of things related to technology. Um, so I discovered, not I discovered, I, I, yeah, I guess I did discover it. I mean, it was out there, but I, I just learned, that's the better phrase. I just learned about this new, I, I think it's new, it's new to me, called this new app or this new website called EarthQuest. And you can learn about it as well at earthquest.net. Um, I haven't tried this yet. I don't know if it's as fun as it sounds, but. I'm a big believer in getting outside, right? I love adventures. I love my favorite thing to do, my wife and I and my and our son. One of the things that we all enjoy is walking. Love walking around the neighborhood and discovering different things. And I know I've met a number of you walking around the neighborhood. It's uh, surprising how many folks, depending on when when we're walking, are able to recognize me from just my voice or the picture that we have on the on the Facebook. But EarthQuest is a new outdoor adventure every day. It's a random adventure generator that encourages you to explore your neighborhood and the world. This almost reminds me of an adult version of Pokemon Go. Do you remember maybe about five or six years ago when Pokemon Go was all the rage? And basically you'd have to walk around and find these spots that these uh, it was basically an interactive video game where you'd see a Pokemon or whatever. There'd be Poke stops and you have to go there in order to get points. Well, every day, the EarthQuest algorithm generates random coordinate coordinates for players to reach. Early levels are easy, but each time you level up, you need to travel farther and explore more remote places. And it's kind of cool. I haven't tried this yet, but I just, um, I just, you know, tried something now, and it has this going just about eight blocks. That's kind of a, a first thing. And I don't know what this location is, but you go there, and it opens up this, the, this map, and there's these purple circles on your phone. You have to go there, and you, that's how you achieve the next level. And it's neat. It's neat. I think, uh, I think it's kind of fun. Maybe we'll try this maybe tomorrow if we do an afternoon or early evening walk. We'll see. 833-969-4447. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, there was an experiment and there was an article about it in a publication called Verge. Verge is um, Verge is interesting. They're an online publication. They write a lot about uh, technology and so forth. And essentially they had the reporter for Verge do an experiment which was to treat, to replace Google with TikTok. And it's an interesting article. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page if you want to read it at uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. Uh, it's facebook.com slash moranofan. I just linked to it. And this this writer, Nick Barkley, he, instead of using Google for his searches, he would go to TikTok. And he said it worked much better than it than he thought it would. Now, I'm skeptical of TikTok because of their ownership by a Chinese company. But they say as TikTok grows, Google in particular has begun to describe the app 
as a whole new way of creating and consuming the Internet and maybe an existential threat to themselves, to Google's own search engine. So um, this fella started with lunch, right? Apparently because that's what all the young folks are doing these days. So he started the phrase on TikTok, just as you would on Google, and I've done this, restaurants in my neighborhood, and he got nothing useful. Then he searched restaurants in Delray, Virginia, which is where he lives. And the results, according to him, were surprisingly useful. He said, Matt and Tony's is a good new restaurant down the street from me. Delray Cafe is a staple of the neighborhood. The next result I scrolled to was uh, for a restaurant in Delray Beach, California, which is literally thousands of miles from from where he is. Ne- and so um, it was uh, it was really it was interesting in that he did all sorts of other searches, and he said that he found TikTok surprisingly useful. And the reason I found this article so interesting is because now this is exactly how younger folks, children and teenagers, use the Internet. They don't use Google or search engines. They use YouTube and TikTok as their search engines. Um, And he says... Um, that in his experience doing TikTok as Google, TikTok is like a choose-your-own-rabbit-hole adventure story, which is a new but fun way to think about search. You can just type Billie Eilish or Best Soccer Plays and watch as long as you want. So um, it's very interesting, I found. Uh, this whole interesting was, uh, look, TikTok is not going to replace Google as a search engine anytime soon, but it's interesting. It's an interesting experiment. So um, Bill is in Manhattan. Hello, Bill. 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 All right. So at this point, Matt, I'm thinking it's it's you, not them. Well, just two callers in a row happened not to be able to hear me. Was it the same guy? I don't think so. No. One was Bill. One was Dave. So, no, I don't think so. <laughs> me. So that's you. Try that's the you. next guy. All right. Try the next guy. Uh, I, he wants to comment on, on an issue that I'm that, that we have moved past. All right. So 833-969-4447 if you want to comment. And help us in our phone experiment. We'll see if we can hear one another. That'll be, that'll be a grand experiment. So, um, oh, the other thing. On the technology front that I thought was interesting is I was very eager to see Elon Musk testify regarding this Twitter purchase today because basically what happened is Elon Musk made a deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion and then decided he wanted to back out of the deal because he wasn't getting the proper information about bots and about a bunch of other things. I think that Twitter's stock price went down and Twitter became a much more a much less valuable company and Musk didn't want to overpay to the tune of several billion dollars for a company that was all of a sudden much less valuable. I think that's what happened here. I think it was more a case of buyer's remorse. Now the Twitter folks, the shareholders and the board said, "Wait a minute. No, 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 no. We you made a deal. You got to buy this." So now they're going to this special court. I think it's called Chauncery Court in Delaware, and um, Elon Musk was supposed to testify yesterday, but he uh, this has been delayed. 
the billionaire had been scheduled to give a deposition in his high-stakes court fight with Twitter over whether he has to follow through on this agreement to buy it for $44 billion. Instead, it was postponed to a future date. The CEO of Twitter, who was also scheduled to face Elon Musk's lawyers on Monday, likewise postponed his deposition. So uh, we'll see where that goes. I don't know when these depositions have been postponed to, but both men are expected to answer questions posed by opposing lawyers ahead of this trial in October that will determine who is at fault for the seeming collapse of Elon Musk's Twitter bid. I think Elon Musk loses this case, and I'm fine with that, not only because I think Elon Musk can afford it, but because I think Elon Musk would actually be a great owner of Twitter. And if he loses the case, he would have to follow through with his deal to buy Twitter. Or I think there's a provision he has to pay a billion-dollar penalty or something along those lines. So, But I would much rather see him own Twitter because I think he'd make it a much better website to use. Hey, um, speaking of the Internet, technology, and so forth, if you are not listening to my Racket Report podcast, you are missing out. Um, this week, my guest is investigative journalist, award-winning investigative journalist, novelist, screenwriter, Peter Lance. Peter Lance has been a guest on the show. He's really terrific. He's an interesting guy. And we focus on the relationship between Greg Scarpa and Lindley DeVecchio. Now, Greg Scarpa was a high-ranking member of the Colombo crime family. How did he get there? Well, I pose that question to Peter Lance. How high did Scarpa get within the hierarchy of the Colombo crime family? How close did he make it to becoming the boss? Well, what's very interesting is that in Linda Vecchio's book, he actually says he, he was never even a capo, which is ridiculous. I mean, I show that he became a capo, I think, in the early 50s, a capo regime, you know, uh, one of the, you know, like a captain level. Mm-hmm. But the irony was that because what he would do that was so brilliant, and this is a guy who's walking the edge of a razor blade. Why? Because on one hand, he's ratting out the mob his own family so he can knock guys out of competition above him in the mob so he can rise up in the mob effectively be a power source although he's pretending like he has no interest in anything other than just doing the business of his own you know his own enterprise kicking up to carmine persico who was the the titular boss who was then he was convicted in the mafia commission case and doing life in uh you know in, in california in california prison uh so, but Scarpa had tremendous power because of his relationship with the FBI. If you want to hear the entire interview, we cover a lot of ground, and you can do so. Uh, just search The Racket Report on any podcast app, uh, The Racket Report uh, with Frank Morano on iTunes or whatever, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Just search that, and I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to that podcast and leave a nice review so that that will help more people discover the podcast. Because, look, I do uh, – I'm not complaining. I love love doing this. I do 20 hours of radio a week to come up with another compelling hour of content uh, that, on something that's new, something that's different, something that's interesting, something that's fun to listen to. It's quite challenging and quite, quite time-consuming. So I hope that a lot of you will subscribe to the podcast, download it, 
to I, I don't want to not that I get any additional money if we have ten thousand downloads versus a thousand, but um, I would at least feel like all the time and work and energy and effort that I'm putting into this podcast is not wasted if you are listening to it. So please search the Racket Report and hit the subscribe button. A very interesting day in the Morano household. The we had uh, my mother-in-law is currently visiting us. She came over yesterday, which was great because my mother-in-law knows a thing or two about raising children, having raised nine children. That's right. My wife is one of nine. And so that meant, for on a more practical level, level that I didn't have to get, get up right away. I got to sleep a little bit longer. And, and Monday is always my most challenging day, Sunday into Monday in terms of sleep, because of that turnaround from going on a weekend schedule to the week. And so I was able to go right to sleep and stay asleep. Lo and behold, yesterday, Monday, I slept, I think, for eight hours. Eight hours straight. I can't remember the last time I got eight hours of sleep straight. So I was glad that she was over and uh, able to uh, able to um, look after young Carmine. And then we went out for uh, Chinese food. Now, I have nothing against Chinese food, but Chinese food is not my favorite. It's uh, not even in my top four Asian cuisines. You know, I love Japanese. I love Indian. I love Thai. Um, Chinese ranks maybe on par with Vietnamese for me. Right? Uh, Korean is easily my least favorite Asian cuisine. But um, I, I wanted to take my mother-in-law out to dinner because she made the trip all the way to our house from where she lives, which is in some cases a two-and-a-half-hour drive. And it'd be fun to go out to dinner and not have my wife worry about cooking and or me have worry about cooking and poisoning people. And uh, I thought that'd be fun. So I asked her, what's your favorite food? And she said, well, Chinese, but I know you don't like Chinese. So I said, oh, no, 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 I like Chinese. We can go to a Pan-Asian restaurant. I could get Thai or Japanese, and you guys can get Chinese. Great. So we go to this Pan-Asian restaurant, and I think I'm doing the responsible thing, and I check to make sure it's open. Great. So we drive about three miles, and now this is a bewitching hour because now we're rapidly approaching Carmine's usual bedtime. And those of you that have been parents of a 10-month-old know that's like carrying a ticket, ticking time bomb when you have a child that is approaching his bedtime. So uh, we get there, and lo and behold, lo and behold, we walk in, and the dining room is closed. You can imagine the eye roll that I, and the sigh, the eye roll sigh combination that I got from my wife at this point. So I said, all right, why don't we just go to the China Chalet, a a Chinese restaurant by our house. And that's where we went. We had a nice Chinese dinner. Although I ordered shrimp shumai, thinking that it was just a shrimp dim sum dumpling. And there's pork in it. And apparently that's the standard, but I didn't know that was the standard. So, whatever. Um, that was the only only blight on the dinner is accidentally getting pork in our shrimp shumai. But that's okay. All right. Uh, Dr. Sky joins me in mere moments to talk about asteroids, space, and so much more. We'll also take your calls at 833-969-4447. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Yesterday was a big day for all of us that are space watchers and look to the stars and wonder what and what if. Well, um, we've been talking about this DART program. DART is an acronym, rather clever one at that. Essentially, what NASA was trying to do was use a vending machine-sized spaceship to divert an asteroid. It happened on the East Coast uh, Monday night around quarter after 12 p.m. Excuse me, uh, around quarter after 7 p.m. And this is some of the audio of what you heard if you were watching this live. I was at a Chinese restaurant at the time, so I had to catch up afterwards. By the way, those of you keeping track, young Carmine, remarkably well-behaved at the Chinese restaurant. That was his first experience at a Chinese restaurant. And uh, what can I say? The kid seems quite fond of Egg Foo Young. He also tried a little fried rice, although he didn't really grasp that he should wait until his mother put it on a fork or a spoon for him. He seemed to prefer to grab the individual rice himself. I guess he doesn't believe in forks. He prefers chopsticks, and he doesn't have the dexterity necessary for chopsticks yet. But! While Carmine was sleeping through my viewing of this, this was a rather impressive moment in the history of space research, space exploration. Here's some audio of NASA's YouTube page at the moment that DART makes an impact. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. Essentially, what this whole experiment is about, and they do claim that it's an experiment, what this whole experiment is about is about making sure that in the future we don't see Earth destroyed by an asteroid like so many movies, like Armageddon, like Deep Impact, like um, Don't Look Up, which uh, John Katzmatidis watched over the weekend. I was a little bummed John gave away portion of the ending of the movie. I, and again, I would never reprimand my boss or John, who's a good friend. But I, I said, John, you're supposed to say spoiler alert before you say something like that. So I'm hoping uh, that people are, who are interested in seeing it have already seen it. But uh, uh, a guy that knows a thing or two about asteroids, about space, and our efforts to... Protect Earth from Asteroids is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Steve, it is great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me once again on the radio. Well, good morning, Frank. Always a privilege and honor to be here on the other side of midnight. And wow, what a day for space uh, exploration and space science. That, that? That is for sure. Now, first and foremost... Obviously, our flagship station and um, a station that I am very proud to be on, WABC in New York. I heard your interview with John Katzmatidis yesterday on his show, and uh, he John made a major announcement, which is that you are joining the WABC family. What's the story? What can you tell us? 
Well, it's a high honor, and thank you, John Katsimatidis, for what you're doing here. But John and I, of course, over the last three years, for many people that may not know that, John's been kind enough to ask me to provide content from these subjects. And, Frank, you've been very conscious, I mean, very kind also, to bring this to the audience out there. But what's supposed to happen here? With a formal agreement with WABC in New York, we're going to be providing podcasts and an area, so in the future, obviously we're proud of what we do here in the West with other radio stations, but the primo one that, hey, I grew up with as a native New Yorker, uh, WABC, will be providing content in the form of a web location and podcasts, and hopefully continuing with you and others here on this great radio station in New York. That's great. So uh, if people want to check out your Dr. Sky blog, is the best place to do that still KTAR.com, or will you be migrating a lot of that content to WABCRadio.com, or is that a question that's too premature at this point? A little premature, but what we're going to be doing is providing unique and special content, exclusive content for WABC for for right now. Kindly, if people would go to KTAR.com here, big news talk station here in Arizona, been around for also about 100 years, and congratulations to them. But there, of course, the Dr. Sky blog, if you go to the menu section and our existing podcast there, we're privileged and honored to be a part of doing this. As you say, being an edutainer, getting the information out there and hopefully having people say that they like this or click the like box, you know, as far as listening to this particular subject, which unfortunately in some cases we both would agree, Frank, sometimes science can be a little dry, so we're trying Mm. to put a little more horsepower into it and make it available for everybody, all ages, all people. And from what I'm hearing from you and the listeners, I think they're liking it a yeah. lot. No, I, I, w- I said before you came on that uh, my friend Tommy Barlotta, who walked in the uh, Tunnel to Towers walk with me on Saturday, he the first thing he said, he listens to the program just about every day, he says, my favorite guest by far is uh, Dr. Sky. And then he proceeds to explain to his girlfriend exactly why uh, that's the case. But enough uh, telling people how great you are. Let's prove it to them. Uh, the NASA DART probe, the yes. goal was to get it to smash into an asteroid in the first de- defense, uh, in the first test of the Earth asteroid defense. What exactly was the goal here yesterday? What happened yesterday? Well, here's the backstory. Hopefully, this little impactor, which is about 1,600 pounds, that's the spacecraft. The Draco camera, for those of you that haven't seen it, YouTube has a replay of it, and NASA TV, of course, did it live. You get to see from a great distance both of these objects, and the goal, very simply, was to hit the smaller asteroid known as uh, Dimorphos, or I call it the Diddy Moon, and hopefully land right in the center of the small object, which is about 520 feet in diameter. But, Frank, I wanted to share this with the listeners. This binary asteroid system, there are not many binary asteroids out there. There are probably many more than we haven't discovered. But it's 7 million miles or so away from the Earth. So giving kudos to the space planners on this, it's like shooting a bullet, say, from New York and hitting a target in Los Angeles and still getting the prize because you hit the bullseye. That's what we hope. But the system, to describe it, there's two objects here. One is Didymos. It was an object discovered back here in 1996, actually by friends of mine at a place called Space Watch on Kitt Peak with their big telescope camera. And then the little Dimorphos was actually discovered as recently as 2003. It's 528 feet, allegedly, in diameter. Dimorphos is about 2,600 feet in diameter, and they're separated by about 3,000 feet. So if all goes well, those images, and, and I hope you got to see some of them, at least as a replay, and the listeners out there, you see the object literally zooming in on first, you see the binary asteroids, and then you see the tiny little Dimorphos. But as it gets closer, this is so strange. This little object 
the small impact object, is like a little rubble pile. So if you were like standing on dimorphous, you probably could literally jump off of it, and maybe the gravity of that tiny little object wouldn't hold you down. So the, the jury's out as far as what's going to happen with this, as far as whether or not it's allegedly, this is what its goal is, to push the object out of its regular orbit. And they have cameras. Even the James Webb Telescope, I'm hearing, is going to be involved in observing this. There's also another spacecraft mission. How about this? There's so many out there called HERA. It's part of the European Space Agency's probe. It's going to hopefully go back to this asteroid in 2026. And it has two tiny little CubeSats. These are little tiny satellites like this one right around the spacecraft DART. It had a little tiny camera, a little CubeSat satellite, maybe the size of like a microwave oven. And it, too, has some interesting sensors and things. It's going to look and see what rubble came out of this asteroid impact. And that little one is called the Lycia Cube. So this Hera object that's going to go there has also two little CubeSats. But this time they're going to have radar and maybe try to image what's inside these asteroids, all for what, Frank, to keep it short and sweet, to hopefully defend Earth in this planetary defense project. But remember, this is the first of a long series of experiments how in good God's name would we move out a five-mile-in-diameter mm. object? You wouldn't do it with a 1,600-pound object, obviously. So it's a good start. If uh, people have questions, by the way, uh, they can give us a call at 833-969-4447. Take note of that special number, 833-969-4447. If you have questions about the DART program, or why NASA is going to these great lengths, uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates is the man to answer that. Steve, apparently we do not yet know if this attempt at diverting the asteroid is successful. It, why is that the case? Why don't we know? Wouldn't we have seen the asteroid, I don't know, nudge a little bit? Very good question, because the object is pretty big. It's 528 feet. Imagine this. If you looked at the Washington Monument, some 555 feet tall, Imagine that object, the Washington Monument, laid down on the grass. You would say that this little object, which is tiny, smaller than a little compact car, it's too early to tell right now. And I don't know. Maybe as we do this interview live, maybe they are getting some confirmation of this. But the little tiny Lycia probe has to turn its cameras on. The obvious impactor is, is destroyed with its great Draco camera. So we probably have to wait. And they're saying cautiously, we may be waiting days to even get information back because the object has to go around this little orbit, you know, around this tiny moon and look for where that impactor allegedly hit. But hopefully, if it did its job, and I think it did, you may see a big plume of material. It's going to come out, hopefully. Maybe, maybe we'll see something as early as sunrise in New York or as the listening audience across the country tomorrow morning, we're mm. hoping. All right. Well, it's going to be very interesting, 833-969-4447. Uh, but before I get to the calls, though, a couple other questions with respect to the the asteroids. Sure. You indicated when you were talking with John Katzenmatidis that it's not just a theoretical nicety to be able to divert asteroids with man-made craft. This could have some very real-world implications in the relatively near future. What's in Earth's short-term future as it relates to possibilities of collisions with asteroids? Well, the first answer is the most questionable thing, and I don't know, but here's the answer about well, why I don't know, and nor do the astronomers. The objects that lurk from the direction of the sun 
where we have limited amount of observational information because of the brilliance of the sun. Let's say an object the size of this uh, dimorphos sneaks past the sun and is headed toward the Earth. Since we don't have planetary defense ready, not for quite a while, maybe years, maybe, who knows, maybe even 10 years, that would be disastrous. But there are objects that are out there, and I talked about this with John Katsimatidis on his show. There's an asteroid we call Apophis. It's named after the Egyptian war god, mm. as if that's not so, you know, kind of mysterious. We're very ominous. This object is over 1,000 feet. So I say to people many times on this particular show, we've talked about it, but here we go for those that are listening to it the first time. On April 13, 2029, Apophis, the asteroid, will come within, here we go, 19,000 miles above the Earth. Now, I didn't say 19 million, 19,000. Frank, that's closer in than the geosynchronous orbital plane of 22,000 miles, where most of these, you know, the Earth is ringed by a satellite ring. We know that. You know, your sports channels, all your big HBOs, you know, you name it. And also some very vital communication satellites, banking, all kinds of stuff. So it's going to come within that zone. Now, should we be worried? Should NASA be sending out the red alert ahead of time and say, prepare, you know, for Armageddon like doomsday? Astronomers are telling us, unless there's some really secret, you know, story going on here, the conspiracy theory 101, the object is not going to hit the Earth. That's a good thing. But here's the problematic thing. When it comes that close to the Earth, there's a little invisible area out there called a gravity keyhole. What's that? It's where if this asteroid goes through that little keyhole, your guess on the next orbital passage, which comes around, I believe, in 2037, and then comes around in the 2060s, let's say, theoretically, it could, who knows, maybe shape it into a different orbit. So these are things. That's probably one of the most prolific ones. But remember, asteroid impacts on the Earth are pretty prevalent. We talked about the great 65 million year ago one that's allegedly to be over five miles in diameter. I don't think that, that's the one that that is supposedly the dinosaur killer, right? Absolutely, and that happened again another 65 million years supposedly before that one. People don't recognize that, but the Chicxulub—that's what it's known as—or the Great Impactor—that changed the dynamics of the Earth. The last thing that the T Rex or the Brontosaurus and other of these type of creatures probably saw was this gigantic flaring object coming out of the sky, and the rest was toast because not only were their bodies literally pulled up into the stratosphere of the Earth, everything was pushed up, say, 50, 60,000 feet up into the atmosphere in this gigantic nuclear-type explosion, and it permeated the Earth, as Carl Sagan used to say, the dark winter which died off, you know, the photosynthesis. And it's amazing, I guess we could say, how resilient the Earth is to snap back and produce creatures like us, plants, animals, and a beautiful planet, uh, at least from the observational side. But Apophis is one. And then there was the great June 30th, 1908 event over Siberia at the time in the Soviet Union called Tunguska, in which an object, there were very few people in that area. There were farmers out there, herds of animals, lots of trees, the object, two stories, quickly. One said that it actually came over the Earth and exploded. One theory says that it came in the atmosphere, it did a detonation, but it skipped off out into space. But the residual damage was that, let's say, the entire state of Connecticut, an area that big, was leveled in a fireball where trees were blown apart like matchsticks. So these objects are real out there. So it's a start in the right direction, mm. I think, for planetary defense. Um, we're going to get to the callers in a, in a moment. But uh, so just so I understand, it is possible for some asteroids to hit the Earth 
without the earth ending or all life ceasing to exist like the dinosaurs were the victims of, right? We can, we can there are some I asteroids would, we can handle. I would hope so, but if I was running for president, I wouldn't want to put that on my platform as a guarantee <laughs> because I would summarily be impeached in a very quick way, but there would be nobody around to help me to be impeached. By the way, um, speaking of uh, kind of a satirical look at uh, spacely consequences for modern-day yes. events, did you end up seeing Don't Look Up, which is on Netflix? You know, I haven't, and I'm always honest with you in the audience. That's one, and here's why. It's such a stupid answer, but it's true. My computer, I have one of these little Minix boxes that sit next to me. Everybody, I guess, has them. It goes and shows you different, you know, screens where you can go to movies. And unfortunately, mine does not have the right updates, so I've been lazy. Uh, Okay, well, no big deal. (laughs) You might be the only person in America, I feel like, that is not using my Netflix account to watch movies. (laughs) I I have people watching my Netflix that I've never even met. There's rumors that they're going to crack down on password sharing. They're going to drag me out in handcuffs because there's there's all sorts of people sharing my Netflix password. All right, we're going to get to um, Dr. Sky in just a moment and your questions for him. 833-969-4447. Two open lines if you have questions about anything happening in space. Uh, We're going to get to Jupiter in a bit and a few other things happening with Artemis. 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Spaceman, uh, Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, a D- WABC contributor officially, and uh, an edutainer with a great deal of expertise and a great deal of passion for the worlds of astronomy and space. All right. I have yammered on enough. We will let you get as many of your questions in as possible. Let me, and if you want to call in, you can, 833-969-4447. Let me begin with Kevin in Manhattan. Hello, Kevin. Yes. Yeah, hi, Kevin. What's your question? Hi, Kevin. Good morning. Okay. Good morning. Uh, my question is, is I've read in the past uh, one way they thought of deflecting asteroids was by shooting an object around the asteroid to change the gravitational pull. Mm-hmm. Now, if we hit this asteroid and it changes its trajectory, will it affect something when it's 100 million miles away and possibly change the trajectory of another object that would hit us huh. as Kevin. a question yeah. of unintended consequence. 
Kevin, you bring up a good hypothesis here, and let me also directly answer this. One of the theories before this was the use of small-yield nuclear weapons. Now people go, what? You're going to detonate a nuclear weapon in space? Well, one, it could either obliterate, obliterate excuse me, the object, which in my opinion would be a big no-no because it's simply this. You'd shotgun the thing, and instead of having one dangerous object headed down the flight path, down to your home, let's say, or here, wherever you're listening, that would send residual particles all over the place. But to answer your question more directly, there has to be a distance in space, depending on the mass and size of the object. And again, this is like the baby just beginning to crawl before it can walk. You're right, though. If they were to do some deflection at a distance that necessarily would cause the object to have, let's say, a little more play in its orbit, you have to know the right time. And I guess that formula is like maybe specially baking a cake or something. You have to use the right ingredients, the right temperature to make it right. So the jury is still out on that. But, yeah, you're right, Kevin. There could be something. If you shot this thing and hit it at a wrong time, it could then force it to go back, and gravity could change it once again. So it has to be done right. And that's something that's really rocket science that they have to figure out. But I want to also mention to everybody, and, Kevin, you've got me to think of it again, and, Frank, this object that hit, let's remind ourselves and remember, this is not a chemical explosion. It's a kinetic impact, or the simple words are, it's just like taking a hammer and hitting something. It's not an explosive device, so I want people to understand that. But, Kevin, you bring up some good points. 833-969-4447, 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Oh, did this, did this I'm sorry. There used to be this plan where they were going to launch a big, heavy spaceship yes. and try and match orbits with the killer asteroid. Um, and try to uh, influence its path by the gravity of the ship. Did, yes. did this last guy just ask that question? Well, he didn't, Bill, but good morning to you. I appreciate your calls here to this show. It's always interesting to listen. As much as you know, people try to talk, it's good to be a listener. So, yes, part of his question was similar, too, to what you're talking about. But in the area of sending a spacecraft out there, it would have to be a gigantic ship. And there were even some crazy theories, why I say crazy, they were thinking of maybe even netting a smaller size asteroid. And don't forget, even a smaller asteroid, Bill, that we're talking about, let's say one that's only 20 feet across. If that, that object, if we think back to 19, uh, 2013, over Russia in February, there was this thing over Russia called the Chelyabinsk event. And this object was only 66 feet across, made of nickel iron. And that thing came right down the highway, right down, you know, right down the express lane. And when it exploded over that area of Russia, it wasn't the asteroid damage was caused by it striking the ground. It was because of the explosion that it created and the, the acoustic shockwave. That's more dangerous. But, yeah, they had theories about trying to send a spacecraft out there. But I'm talking about maybe netting, or they were, smaller asteroids that you have enough time to say, hmm, let's tug this thing away. Let me say hello to John in Freehold. Hello there, John. Hey, how are you, Frank? Good, John. Good morning, John. What's your question? Good morning, guys. Um, so just real quick, Frank, I got your login information from Netflix off of Reddit. Uh, you and every other every other person in the in North America. Not surprised. Well, I feel I feel jealous there. I'd like to get it also there. <laughs> and um, my question is going to be: um, Are you guys familiar with Stephen Greer? Um, Stephen Greer. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Yeah, you said Stephen yeah. Greer. Yes. 
Well, yeah, I, okay. I certainly am. Yeah, and if people don't know, he's a, he's an, a, a UFOologist or a UFOlogist. Yes, exactly, well, he, John. Go ahead, please. Um, so he's uh, he's been one to actually disclose stuff to um, to the government. Um, he's had like he's held disclosures for Congress and stuff. Um, so he's a very believable guy. But um, I was just wondering if you guys um, believe him that. Uh, you know, all his, like, things he says that uh, there is a space for us, there's, a, there's aliens, he's met them, there's a hidden agenda. And if he's one to disclose stuff to Congress, shouldn't he be telling the truth then? Well, John, you know, it's very interesting. I don't know a depth about uh, Mr. Greer, but I have heard him on other shows, of course, like Coast to Coast. But the interesting part about this is there's still that thing in the back of my mind that says, of course, when we talk about UFOs, and I know, Frank, you have some great guests on about this subject all the time. But, John, I'll say this much. I still think there's something we're not being told about the whole UFO thing, don't you? And now why is the government and NASA so interested in dedicating time, money, and resources to getting to the bottom of this? Maybe there is something like that. Because here's the strangest story of all, if we have just a moment mm-hmm. on this, gentlemen. This object called Oumuamua was discovered by a friend of mine named Dr. Robert Warrick out in the observatory in Hawaii back in 2017. It's an object that's now being identified as the first of the interstellar objects, meaning it didn't come from the solar system. It came from the star system called Vega, which is 25 light years away. Why am I talking about it? It's because there's great concern and controversy over how come this object came into the solar system at 100 or 200,000 miles an hour, a super high hyperbolic orbit, meaning it came far from a far away. It's pancake-shaped. It's red in color, and it started to thrust itself out of the solar system faster than it came in, what does that? And there's a professor, Dr. Avi Loeb, who has a great theory on this. He believes it's an extraterrestrial messenger of some kind of spacecraft, and nobody really knows. But again, John, it's amazing what we're not being told. How about that? Uh, that's for sure. 833-969-4447. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Yeah, I think I have the same question. Um, there was this object that came through recently um, Again, we thought it was from another solar system. Yes. Is there a way to protect against that? Not really, but good morning to you, Don. I mean, this is into all these questions. I love them, Frank. They're mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. So here's something about this, Don. There was an object that came, through this, that came through the sky, I can't say from the solar system, that crashed or supposedly went into the ocean. I believe it was off New Guinea. And they're trying to find out where this thing is under the ocean because it may be mm-hmm. one of the first artifacts of an actual extra solar type of object, meaning it's not from this solar system. What is it? Now, I'm not going to say it's mm-hmm. a UFO or spacecraft, but it could be something from another star system. We need to find it, if we can, and find out what it's made of, because that's another strange mystery out there. Thank you, Don. You know, um, just good to go back to the uh, the um, asteroid issue for mm-hmm. just a second, I sent you a, a commentary from a, a law professor by the name of John Banzoff. I don't know if you had an opportunity to read it, but uh, if for the for the edification of the audience, essentially, sure. what this um, very well respected law professor not a not an astronomer or anything like that, uh, but he's a very long time. I think he's re- technically retired now, so I think he's a professor em- emeritus at uh, George Washington University. What um, what he is suggesting is that if this works, this DART technology, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, if this works in altering the orbit 
of an asteroid that maybe down the road um, that this technology could somehow be used to slightly alter the orbit of the Earth. He uses it um, as a possible solution to global warming. He he basically says that how increasing Earth's orbit by a mere 0.3 percent might balance the current global warming crisis. And he also suggests a lot of techniques that this can be used. And he cites a couple of people that are more experienced in space systems engineering that basically give a little bit of credence to this idea. What's your take on the idea of whether it's for global warming purposes or any other purpose down the line, using this kind of technology to alter the orbit of the Earth, Steve? Well, first, I'm always honest. I didn't see that article, but listening to what you're saying, here's my commentary on this. Anything that could help the Earth from going through dramatic climate changes, I'm all for, whether climate change is real or the other side of the coin, whether it's not. But the reality is all weather comes from the sun. But I'm just curious as to the dynamics or what's the system of propulsion that you would have to use to move the Earth and tug it out of its orbit. Because remember, there's a problem here, and I think astronomers would get into this very deeply, and more those with celestial mechanics, meaning the understanding of gravity and the forces. We have a moon that orbits this Earth. So if we're going to change the orbit of the Earth or do something to that, how does that affect the relationship that we have with an existing and very valuable partner, the moon itself? So I'd like to really read that and uh, comment more when I can study it. But I don't know. That's fascinating, but I think we have to consider what the moon, how would that affect our relationship with the moon, which is our principal thing that causes tides, and we obviously depend on that here on the Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you about Jupiter. Apparently, this week is a very good day for Jupiter gazing. Uh, what, uh, oh. what exactly can we see if we look in Jupiter's direction this week? Frank, I was tempted to use the cell phone about two hours ago. I was outside here in Phoenix with the telescope, one of the larger ones. And tonight, all across the listening audience of your show, this is so amazing, the other side of midnight. Jupiter is literally at its best. It's called opposition, and it's a good kind of thing, not like it's you know repulsive, the word opposition. It means that a planet, when it's at opposition, rises at sunset, is in the sky all night. And it so happens that Jupiter now is the closest that it will be probably for the next 60 to 80 years for us. Mm. Now, what does that mean? It's 368 million miles away. And what I was going to do, and maybe we'll do that in the future if you don't mind, sit at the telescope and look at it live. But for everybody listening, wherever you are, if you have a clear sky right now, look high up into the southern part of the sky, the big white beacon of light. It is so bright, how bright. Nothing in the sky is brighter than Jupiter other than Venus, the moon, and the sun. And when it's 368 million miles away, Frank, what was I seeing? I was seeing the red spot storm on Jupiter at about 300 times magnification in this 8-inch diameter telescope, you know, a fairly good size. And I could see the little attendant four moons sitting there, and they move if you wait a few hours. Sometimes they cross Jupiter. Sometimes they go behind it. And you can see the shadow thrown by some of them as it goes onto the ball. But don't miss it because Jupiter, even in a more like a practical sense, is like a great vacuum cleaner in the solar system. It absorbs so much of the debris that would hit the Earth if it weren't there. And no, it's not a star. I mean, that's the one of the theories, I guess, in the sequel to 2001, that it became a sun. You'd need 80 times the mass of Jupiter for it to really start fusion. But simply don't miss it. And there was something else, Frank, that I think people along the east coast of the listening area got to see on Saturday. Elon Musk 
launched his 30, 30, 43rd orbital launch of these SpaceX you know, uh, satellites. And these 53 satellites, there was a large, gigantic rocket plume visible all along the East Coast. I got so many emails on this. Yeah. It looked like a big jellyfish in the sky. But he's got about 3,400 of these Starlink satellites up there now. But get a load of this. The V-2 satellites that he's going to develop will be larger and more effective. And with a deal with T-Mobile called Above and Beyond, these particular objects once launched into space on the new Starship rocket, maybe even as early as November, they're going to solve a problem. And I have it here in Arizona, and people have it all across the country. There's dead spots when you have a cell phone. So this system will hopefully give you no more dead zones. Wow. That will be amazing. Wouldn't that be great? Absolutely. So Jupiter making a very close approach uh, to yeah. Earth, uh, its closest approach since 1963. And according to what Steve Cates is saying, uh, this is the closest Jupiter will be for the next 60 to 70 years. So if you want to take a look at what uh, Jupiter looks like, I guess, um, can a good set of binoculars do the trick, Steve? Absolutely. And we've got to go always to the simple part of this. The naked eye. I've even heard people say that they saw one of the moons of Jupiter with the naked eye. They must have had better than 2015 vision. But binoculars, Frank, you can go 10 by 50 pair of binoculars. You hold them steady, and you'll see these little tiny objects that look like stars. And remember, one of them is Ganymede. It's larger than the planet Mercury. So Jupiter has an amazing array of satellites, upwards of maybe 70-plus but the four you should be able to see, hopefully, with a steadily handheld pair of binoculars. Mm. Uh, it's certainly going to be interesting. How long will Jupiter be close to us, close enough to see some of these Galilean moons? All throughout the rest of this year. And it's going to get spectacular because I snuck out of bed early this morning, uh, I should say yesterday morning, and I looked up in the sky and Jupiter, I saw it rise just after sunset. And then I got up around four in the morning, which is unusual for me. And I saw Jupiter all the way down in the west, and nearly overhead, another great planet is getting close. The planet Mars, it gets closest to the Earth in December. And already in the telescope, we can see polar cap activity, maybe some of the continents and small dust storms moving across Mars. So the sky is filled with beautiful things to see, but Jupiter is the king. Zeus. All right. 833-969-4447. We're to continue with Dr. Sky in just a moment. We'll talk about what's happening with the moon, namely our attempts to get back to the moon and what role Artemis is playing in this whole situation and where we are with Artemis. 833-969-4447. We'll try and get a few more of your questions in. Four open lines if you want to have a question for Steve Cates. We'll continue. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
by Paris Hilton. This was one of her earlier hits, as far as I'm concerned, her best song ever. Um, there was always a lot of controversy about how much singing on this song she actually did. As far as I am concerned, I don't know. I don't care. It, it's very catchy. Um, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran TV and radio broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. If you have a question, you're welcome to give us a call. Uh, 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Steve, give us the latest on the Artemis One moon rocket. What is happening? Yes, well, Frank, I'm having a little compassion for an inanimate object called a rocket called Artemis One, because it's really the little rocket that could, but it's the big rocket that can't get off the ground. Mm. Here's what's happening. With the impending Hurricane Ian moving up through that area like the Gulf Coast and maybe Tampa and actually over the Space Center, they're now moving back. I think it just happened Monday night. They started to roll it back on the transporter, back to its house, its safe, protective little uh, enclosure called the Vehicle Assembly Building. And remember, that particular crawler is monstrous, it moved the Saturn V moon rockets. It's gotten some repairs. But it gets, Frank, the worst gas mileage that I've ever heard of anything, <laughs> whether it's diesel. It gets 40. Here we go again. It gets 41 feet to the gallon. So it has a long trek, but hopefully it'll make it safely back into the VAB, which that building was meant during the days of Werner von Braun to withstand hurricane-force winds. But let's hope for the best. But now the update on the rocket. It's had a series of hydrogen leaks. We all know that hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. Elon Musk disagrees that they should use another type of propellant in there. NASA, I didn't know this. The Congress was what authorized the fuel for that rocket. I didn't know they were rocket scientists, but here's the deal. It hopefully will have all the hydrogen leaks fixed. They had too much pressure in some of the hoses. They're supposed to put 20 PSI and 60 got in. This uh, launch was supposed to happen on the 27th. No, that's scrubbed, obviously. The October launch is probably scrubbed. And then we're maybe looking, I don't know. And when I don't know, I'm honest. We may be going into November or maybe even beyond, because as Bill Nelson says, well, we won't launch any rocket until we're ready to go, not his exact words. And rightfully so, because it's the world's most powerful rocket with 8.8 million pounds of thrust, and you want to do it right. And uh, just so everybody's clear, this Artemis One rocket, this would not be... Any, this would not be a manned mission to the moon. This would be sort of a, a dress rehearsal for a future mission to the moon, right? It is, and it's kind of like Apollo 8 without the people on board. But this is interesting. It's got three anthropomorphics or dummies in there. I think one of them, uh, Campos, is named after one of the namesakes of Apollo 13. He worked as an engineer. And then there's two uh, the female dummies. They don't have arms and legs, but they're going to be used and strapped in to test radiation environments and testing. And then there's a little Snoopy that's going to float around there, literally Snoopy, that's going to test weightlessness and things like that. So it's an unmanned mission. But here's the interesting difference. This is going to be the farthest object ever sent out. And eventually, when it has humans on board that's ever been sent out there into space, it's going to have a very strange orbit. It goes way out, maybe 30,000 miles beyond the moon, back to around 3,000 and it's also paving a way, like a spacecraft called Capstone, to be able to check this new lunar orbit that they're going to eventually need to build what they call the Gateway Space Station. So hopefully Artemis gets off the ground. The only thing I wish, Frank, is that you, John Katsimatidis, and all of the listeners could have a special tour to get down there 
and know that it's going to go off, wouldn't that be the most oh, yeah, that, thing that, to see? That would be something. Covering it live, that would be great. I, I know we've covered this before, but I think it bears repeating because it's something that I get asked about a great deal. By the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Sky. If we don't get to your questions today or if there are, if you're interested in a lot of the content that we're covering, you can check out the Dr. Sky blog at uh, ktar.com. Explain to the folks listening why, with the Apollo missions between 1969 and 1973, we were able to go to the moons, the, the moon multiple times with manned missions, land on the moon, and come back. And now, even though presumably there's been 50 years of technological advancement, why is it such a chore now to go to the moon? And something that the last three presidents, maybe the last four, have uh, said they're going to go back to the moon in a manned mission, and we haven't been able to do it. I, I think the layman yeah. might ask, why can't we just do the same thing that we did back in 1972? Well, I think the best person to ask, Frank, would be you and I asking Elon Musk. Right. Because look at all the great successes he's had. Now, not to knock NASA, I have a lot of friends there, and you know, I'm not a paid participant, you know, on on, on NASA staff. But here's the thing: when you look at this whole rocket, it's basically using—and I hate the word "used parts," but no, that's an insult to NASA. It's using remanufactured parts. The RS-25 engines on board the spacecraft. Are, are engines that actually ran on the previous space shuttles with improvements. Nothing wrong with that. But remember, the solid rocket motors that are attached are extended, longer versions of what we used on the shuttle. And again, I keep saying this to everybody, think of the small budget that NASA really gets. They only get 20-plus-some billion dollars. And somebody may say, wait a minute, that's a lot of money. Well, look at all these other government programs that get so many and all the you know, the acronym three-letter agencies in the government that get rightfully so or whatever, the funding. So the reason I think, in my humble opinion, is that we haven't gone back and done it with a much more regular rapidity is the truth of the matter is I don't know, truly, how focused we have been at NASA. Because if you have a guy like Elon Musk, where did he come from? Right. And it's amazing what he's done in such a short time. Look how many repetitive launches, like this Starlink thing he just did. Sure. The booster rocket landed successfully after nine minutes of getting the spacecraft satellites into space, and it soft lands, Frank, on a ship out in the ocean. I mean, NASA hasn't done that, so let's wish them well, but they've got a lot of thinking to do about how to get these rockets to do what they're supposed to do, but I think they will. Sure. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello there, Howard. What's your question for Steve Cates? question is, can they develop some type of netting to change the path of the asteroid and how will it affect the temperature of the Earth and the atmosphere? Very good question, Howard. Good morning to you. Here's the situation we talked about a little before. One theory was if you had small asteroids, and I don't know the upper limit of small, it could mean 20, 30 feet across. If you could get a spacecraft out there to net the thing and use the power of a spacecraft to slowly push it away, because what you don't want to happen is any of these asteroids, especially the big ones, right, Frank, to come into the Earth's atmosphere and literally cause havoc to an already planet that's going through these changes, as many believe, with higher temperatures and all kind of weather systems gone to whack. But, Howard, that's an idea, but I don't know if that's something that's going to happen anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, no, it's going to be uh, very interesting to see what happens. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. You mentioned uh, Jupiter, uh, this being a good lo- week to look at uh, Jupiter and the Galilean moons of Jupiter. 
Anything else that's worth keeping an eye on in terms of uh, uh, stuff that people can observe, either with binoculars, a telescope, or even the naked eye? Well, yes, and let's do it fast, because the moon was new the other day, meaning it doesn't shine at all, and we call it the dark of the moon. So I would go out, wherever your program is being heard all across the country, I would go out these nights, if it's clear, and look to the south. A pair of binoculars will help right after sunset. What you're going to see, Frank, is this most amazing area of the Milky Way, the core in Sagittarius. And I just did a program on one of the dinner cruises we do here on a, on a, you know, a boat here on the lake. And it's amazing. We're only 40 miles from Phoenix, but we have dark skies. So I'm saying people with binoculars, wherever you're listening, you can see the star clouds of the Milky Way. And remember, those star clouds, the core of our Milky Way is 27,000 light years away from your eye. But even more impressive, whether you're a beginner at this or you have advanced you know, knowledge of this, isn't that most amazing just to stare into the great cosmos and see it without the light of the moon? But you need dark skies. Switching gears a little bit, a Russian official recently said that a spacecraft operated by commercial entities could be a legitimate target for retaliation when used for military purposes. Said that during the U.N. Uh, meeting last week. You alluded to SpaceX and Starlink. Now, we know that the SpaceX Starlink satellites have been used by Ukraine as a communications tool sure. in their fight against Russia's invasion. What would happen if Russia started to attempt to shoot down some of these SpaceX Starlink satellites? Is that a possibility? I know that Russia doesn't have a space force that we're aware of anyway. Do they have the technology or the military wherewithal to start shooting out, shooting out of space some of these satellites? Absolutely. And there was a test that the Russians did, get a load of this, from the ground. It didn't even happen from space. They have a missile technology, and we have it, okay, but they have a missile that you can shoot from the ground to shoot upwards of two, 300 miles into space. That's easy. And all you could do if you really wanted to desire to cut down a communication satellite with, a, you know, the white flag waving on it saying, hey, I'm not a target, or the red, you know, the red cross flag, don't hit us. You know, we should be immune to uh, being attacked. That seriously would disrupt everything. But an even more prolific problem would be, and thank goodness we have a space force, because I'm sure with this little tiny mini space shuttle that we have up there called the X-37B, we really don't know what its purpose is, but many believe it's a space force antidote Hmm. for any attacks on satellites. So here's the bottom line on that. The Russians have that capability. They could shoot anything out of the sky, but the most serious ones to all of us is the ability to knock out the GPS satellites. And Russia does not use, excuse me, China does not use our GPS technology. So that would be interesting. So if they wanted to hit us, not to give anybody any ideas, in this great, you know, war game in space type of concept, you know, like a board game you could play, Space Wars, you would probably want to take out the GPS satellites as quickly as you could because look how many of our aircraft. The B-2 bomber, I'm sure, uses internal navigation that uses what? GPS. I don't know what the backup is. But if you took it out, yes, simply, Frank, you could shoot missiles up from the ground and hit things in space. I don't know what the response would be. It probably would be nasty. 
I, I can imagine. By the way, I just got an SMS text message from uh, Dr. Peter Mikolos, who is uh, – uh, John Katsimatidis calls him our yes. resident genius because he Absolutely. seems to know everything about uh, medical research and everything else. Mm-hmm. And he just sent me a photo that he took of Jupiter, and it's very stunning. And he said uh, he just woke up, and thanks to <laughs> our show and Dr. Sky, he saw it. And he sent me a photo, and it's really impressive. So if people uh, take some photos, uh, and this is just from his mobile phone, I think. If people want to take some photos of Jupiter and post them in our Facebook group, I'd love to see some pictures. Uh, Morano Radio fans and haters, if you want to share that on there. So that's great. Absolutely. No, Frank, I enjoy listening to Dr. Mikulos, and I listen to his health advice because he is the resident genius, and I love listening to him. And I think that's important, Doctor, as you're listening right now. One final note, we were on the Dolly Steamboat, as we call it, in Arizona, a dinner cruise boat. And when Jupiter was rising, we took a picture. This is interesting. Not only was Jupiter bright, but the light beam of Jupiter was seen in the water as if the light beam had some sort of like a you know, Star Wars phaser on it or some kind of a light source, lightsaber. That's amazing, just to tell you how bright it is. So, Dr. Mikolos, thank you for uh, adding that to the show. I had this on my list for you, and I'm going to make this the last point that I cover with you. There was an article last week about a new study in the journal Science that hypothesizes that a large moon destroyed by Saturn might be responsible for that planet's distinctive rings, which have sort of become the calling card of of Saturn. Saturn. That's what a new study uh, is suggesting. How do they know that, uh, Steve? And what does that mean? What can we do with this information if uh, a moon, a destroyed moon, is responsible for Saturn's rings? Simple answer is something in astronomy and space. It's called the Rocher's Limit. When an object gets too close to a parent body bigger, it will self-destruct. So it's more than likely that Saturn's rings and other rings, by the way, Jupiter has a ring, thin, Uranus has one, Neptune has one, but it's more problematic that it was a larger moon and it created what we see as one of the most beautiful symmetries in space. You see the Saturnian ring system. I just looked at that also in the telescope last evening. But here's the thing. That's the ring system is about as thin as a football field and it's made up of so many layers of material, maybe the size of a fist of ice and stone, all the way up to the size of maybe a small SUV. But what's interesting, Frank, is they go in different rotation. The whole ring doesn't rotate as one solid body. It has differential rotation, and there's a gap in there called Cassini's division, that black gap in there. So it's more than likely that an errant satellite or a large moon got destroyed by something in science called the Rocher's Limit, where the gravity took over and literally smashed the object because of the overpowering Jupiter of the big ball, I mean of Saturn, the big ball of Saturn. Mm. Well, that is wild. Steve, as is always the case, whenever we get together, the time has just flown by. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot more of you uh, around the uh, around the radio network and uh, look forward to having you again on the uh, on the show sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. A pleasure and privilege and honor. Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Um, and I guess, in the words of the great Casey Kasem, it's an important point, important time to mention. Keep reaching for the stars while keeping your feet on the ground. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
Do you know what happened three days ago? Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Something in New York State happened about three days ago that has gotten almost no attention but is potentially one of the most groundbreaking things to happen in the history of New York State and quite possibly in the history of the United States. And I'm not joking about this. This is absolutely sincere, and yet I don't think the news media has a full appreciation for how groundbreaking this was. Three days ago, there was a decision in a court case. West 49th Street, LLC versus O'Neill. It was decided by New York Civil Court Judge Karen May Bakdayan or Bastayan. My apologies to Judge May Bakdayan. Okay. So a New York I'll give you the sum of it first, and then if you want to hear the details, I'll give you the details. A New York trial court judge, in this case Judge Bakdayan. A New York trial court judge concluded that polyamorous relationships are entitled to the same sort of legal protection given to two-person relationships. Understand what I'm saying? This is very big. Plural marriage or polygamy or polyamory, whatever you want to call it, plural marriage has essentially been recognized in New York State Under a key precedent, a judge in New York has just ruled that polyamorous relationships, in this case a three-person married unit living together in an apartment, are entitled to the same legal protection as any two-person marriage, be it a same-sex marriage or an opposite-sex marriage. Since the judge relied upon the famous legal precedent which led to constitutional protection for same-sex marriage, this ruling could expand that right by creating a fundamental right to marriages of three or more people. On the other hand, this expansive reading of the law could even lead to an overruling of the constitutional right of two of two people of the same sex to marry. That's the word from uh, some legal experts. So This is what the court said. In the court's words, before gay marriage was legalized in any state, Brashi versus Stahl Associates Company, 1989, was decided. The New York State Court of Appeals became the first American appellate court to recognize that a non-traditional two-person same-sex committed family-like relationship is entitled to legal recognition. Brashi, that's the court case, Brashi, I think I said Brashel. Brashi is widely regarded as a catalyst for the legal challenges and changes that ensued. By the end of 2014, gay marriage was legal in 35 states through either legislation or state court action. Uh, Obergfell versus Hodges in 2015, the seminal Supreme Court decision that established same-sex marriage as a constitutional right was also heralded as groundbreaking. Now, that Brashi case from New York's highest court, upon which this trial court judge relied, held that whether or not 
individuals in a marriage are entitled to legal protection should be based upon an objective examination of the relationship of the parties. In, the, in making this assessment, the judge um, has looked to a whole bunch of factors, including the longevity of the relationship, the level of financial commitment, the level of emotional commitment. This is all in the decision. The manner in which the parties have conducted their everyday lives and held themselves out to society and the reliance placed upon one another for daily family services. It's the totality of the relationship as evidenced by the dedication, caring, and self-sacrifice of the parties, which should, in the final analysis, control, according to the court. So um, this is very interesting, very interesting, because clearly some judges can find that these same characteristics are present in other polyamorous relationships where three or more people live together in a house or an apartment and perhaps even raise children together. Additionally, it's not the only example of the rapidly expanding legal recognition of plural marriages. The trial judge writes in her decision in February of 2020, the Utah legislature passed a so-called bigamy bill, which decriminalized the offense by downgrading it from a felony to a misdemeanor. In June of 2020, Somerville, Massachusetts, passed an ordinance allowing groups of three or more people who consider themselves to be a family to be recognized as domestic partners. The neighboring town of Cambridge, I think that's Bill de Blasio's uh, original hometown, the neighboring town of Cambridge followed suit, passing a broader ordinance recognizing multi-partner relationships. The law has proceeded even more rapidly in recognizing that it's possible for a child to have more than two legal parents. In 2017, the Uniform Law Commission, an association that enables states to harmonize their laws, drafted a new Uniform Parentage Act. One provision, one provision of which facilitates multiple parent recognition Virgins of the provision have passed in California, Washington, Maine, Vermont, and Delaware, and is under consideration in other places. Um, I'm curious what you think of this. We are, in part, this decision is just the latest salvo in this. We are rapidly getting to a place where polyamorous domestic partnerships are going to be legally recognized. And that's why I don't think this court decision got its just due. This is big. And yet, it was almost totally ignored everywhere. And I I can't understand why. But I'm curious at 833-969-4447, that's 833-969-4447, what you would think of this. What do you think of the idea of legalizing polygamy? Not just polyamorous domestic partnerships, as the judge in this case has de facto legalized, but full-out legal marriage for three, four, five people. What do you say to that? Why or why not? 833-969-4447. There is another side to this coin. If the Supreme Court's decision in Obergfell, which is the decision that legalized same-sex marriage across the whole country to begin with. If that if that decision is going to open the door 
to judicial recognition of plural marriages, something that a lot of experts, including that George Washington University law professor that I referenced, John Bonzoff, something that a lot of experts predicted at the time would never happen. The Supreme Court, with its new conservative majority, could actually decide to reconsider and overrule Oberfell as it just did with Roe versus Wade when it overturned their previous ruling in Roe versus Wade. Wouldn't that be something if all this polygamous or this polyamorous plural marriage stuff and all these decisions made their way to the Supreme Court for a reconsideration of Obergefell again? Because this is a situation where I could see both the advocates for polygamy continuing to push for greater legal recognition of the practice. And I could also see opponents of same-sex marriage trying to push this these cases up the federal ladder for the exact opposite reason. Because they want to do to gay marriage what the Supreme Court did to abortion. And I don't want to get into a political discussion or a, or necessarily a legal one. I just want to talk about kind of how you feel about this. Should polygamy be legal? Bottom line. Why or why not? And if it were, would you want to be in a polygamous marriage? 833-969-4447. There was a very good Boston Legal episode about this. And it's such a shame that all of, especially when I'm trying to open the door to as even as a non-lawyer being a civil court judge. But it's such a shame that all of my legal knowledge seems to come from watching Boston Legal. But I came away from watching that episode of Boston Legal and the HBO original series Big Love, which was a great series, I might add, with Bill Paxton and Chloe Savini and uh, a bunch of other people. Great, great series. I came away watching those programs thinking that maybe, maybe it shouldn't be illegal. Right. And maybe this is a lifestyle choice that works for a lot of people. The reason that I think they banned it in Utah. In fact, this was a condition of Utah becoming a state because this was initially very big in the Mormon religion, the Mormon culture. And uh, they said to Utah, you want to become a state, you got to outlaw it. And they did. And I think part of the reason they did that is because it became a place which was um, basically – it was very easy for people to be abused, right? A lot of young women and girls, quite frankly, were in abusive relationships. They were almost kind of slaves, sex slaves and other kind of slaves, and they were masquerading it as just being in a plural marriage. But, and again, I hate to have all my, I would hate to have all my knowledge of this subject come from motion pictures, but if you look at the musical Paint Your Wagon, which is terrific, as a fan of both Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood, I don't know how you don't love that picture. A musical, by the way. How often do you get to see both Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood sing? But in that picture, um, you, you get the sense that, all right, maybe a plural marriage can work. Curious if you think it can. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. When I was a child, I think I've talked about this before. When I was a child... I um, there were there were two girls in my class that I liked. Right. And they're talking like fourth grade, you know, third grade. And I was always angry 
not, not these two girls were out of my league, even as a fourth grader. So there was no, I never dated any either of them. But I was always angry that in my fantasy as a third grader, I couldn't marry both Jillian and Pamela. Why could I not marry both of them? Then, as you as you mature and you see the amount of work, and the amount of time, and the amount of money, quite frankly, that goes into a marriage to one person. I can't imagine being married to two people and giving both of them the attention that they deserve, especially if you have both if you have children with both of them. I, I have to think that's extraordinarily challenging. But I, I am curious if also if you've ever been in a polyamorous relationship and you can use, you know, a fake name if you want. You don't have to tell us the truth. And how that's worked out for you. Because I've read a whole bunch of articles about this. In fact, I think we talked about it at the time, even before this court case, um, about all sorts of polyamorous relationships. Donna from Huntington is always great about sending me articles about polyamory. She's a, a res- resident expert on uh, on polyamory. So uh, if uh, you want to call in, if you have any experience with this, I'm curious to know how it works out uh, for you. Do people get jealous of one another? And just from a public policy perspective, should it be legal? 833-969-4447. This court case is a big deal. 833-969-4447. Tony is in Clifton, New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Hello, Tony. Hi. Hi. So, you know, I'm not really going to comment on it because it's kind of not my thing. But I was thinking from a tax perspective, if someone's Someone's either going to benefit or lose out. For the rest of us who are dealing with the whole tax code based on, you know, based on marriage, um, the whole tax code would have to be revamped to accommodate or potentially be revamped. It's ridiculous. I think it's, I think it's a bit much um based on the way our society is at this time. I just think for for us to do that, tax laws are going to come up and other things are going to be affected. Not only taxes, but where you're living, um, housing, um, those kinds of things. And honestly, you know, you, you can't really, how many people can you fit <laughs> in one place plus children unless you're out in Utah. Well, uh, that's a that's a fair question as well, Tony. Tony, thank you for the uh, thank you for the call 833-969-4447. See, the way that this this the way that this went down was you had three people. Uh Scott Anderson and Marcus O'Neill, they lived together in an apartment. That's two people. Anderson was on the lease, O'Neill was not. After Anderson died, O'Neill would have had the right to renew the lease if he were a non-traditional family member. But Anderson was married to Robert Romano. The apartment building company therefore argued that O'Neill was just a roommate. But the court concluded that there needed to be a hearing about whether Anderson, Romano, and O'Neill were actually in a polyamorous relationship. And they found that they were. And my understanding is now he gets to stay in the apartment. So to Tony's point, this court case actually does have some pretty significant real-world implications for housing uh, and and on health care and health care decision-making. 
Uh, let me say hello to Adrian on the Upper West Side. Adrian, I have not dreamed about your voice in a while. It's been disappointing. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's so weird. Um, I'm all for uh, this. Would work like both. Like women could have more than one. I'd love to have more than one husband. Right now, that's how many? Right. And you, then you—you you have one I husband mean, currently. Yeah, I'm very happy with him and all too. But I, but and I think he's happy with me. But I'm just saying, like, if one could, like, you know, like in the, in the, in the, some of, I don't know what religion people are, but in, in you know, the Bible, like originally, you know, men could have many wives. And I always thought, well, gee, you know, uh, maybe, you know, why wasn't it both? You know, it, it, it's unappealing when it's only the men. Oh get no, I agree, wives, and, and and that's the premise of the film Paint Your Wagon. That's exactly the premise of the film. And the play. Oh. Oh. I learn something new every day. But, yeah, I'd be all for it. I don't know if – I think once I brought this up with my husband, just, you know, just in theory, because someone was making a comment about Sister Wives. I don't watch that show, but I guess they have – these guys have several wives or something on the show, Sister Wives. I I believe so. I haven't seen it either. So whenever I say it's a great idea for – to have several husbands – it seems like men get really annoyed at the at even they don't even think about it. like if you just really think about it I'm not saying for everybody but 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 why not you have the shield of marriage it's cheaper housing is so darn expensive especially in New York and you know if someone gets you know as long as everyone agrees uh, you know some people. I'm, I'm not saying they would necessarily even be getting, you know, having sex with all of them. Maybe at some point you get a little tired of your partner. I must, you know, I, I just say uh, as long as women could have several husbands, yeah, why not? I don't uh, have a problem okay. With hey, Adrian, that. what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Fair enough. 833-969-4447, beginning of a new age, right? Uh, original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um... My phone was messed up. Yeah, about the... Uh, Take a number. Divorce law. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, about this multiple marriage thing, you can't change one law without changing a whole bunch of others to, to fit it. I mean, what about the divorce laws now? How, how does that work? Do you do... If there's one person able to divorce the other two, does it mean the whole marriage is, is gone because it's one marriage? What, what about the you know uh, child custody? How, how does that work? I mean... It, it just doesn't seem to. Uh, how about you know Social Security? When you when you you got to split it up three ways now. Uh, the property uh, it just seems like it just wouldn't work legally without a whole bunch of other laws being fit into it. Oh no, this definitely creates a um, kind of a uh, a new paradigm, right? In terms of everything that you just mentioned. So your your answer is you would not want to see. Polygamy legalized because you don't you think it would open up a practical um, can of worms essentially. Well, yeah. Also, also we're, now you're talking about a three way marriage, but when polygamy is uh, legalized, that means you could have two separate marriages to two separate women not living together. I mean, how many are you going to be like a king in Saudi Arabia? You know? Yeah. Well, no. It, uh, yeah, you're right. No, no, no. Absolutely. Thank you, Rick. Uh, e Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E Frank. Yes, hello, Frank. Uh, you know, I don't believe in this multiple uh, arrangement of people getting married. 
or living together like that. I, I actually believe in what's left over of what's left of the traditional uh, marriage uh, understanding, which is uh, one man, one woman. You know, I'm single. I'm still looking for a person to be with, and I usually have had several uh, friend girls. I don't like men. And, and, you know, I've always told them, you know, you have to live under my rules and live in my apartment with me. If you like the apartment, if you like me, fine. If you don't, you can just walk off. You know, I don't believe it, it, that people have sexual addiction issues or problems and they can't get it right. They have to figure a way in what they really want from a, the other, the opposite sex. They can't just say, you know, let's just try each other. Let's just figure it out where a group of people have multiple sex partners. You know, that's sickening in my opinion. All right. Well, thank you, Ephraim. Um, it's interesting. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, wrote in his defense in Obergfell, which is the case that legalized same-sex marriage. This is what he said. And this is what he kind of warned about. Although the majority, remember, I think it was a 5-4 majority. It might have been 6-3. I don't remember. But um, although the majority randomly inserts the adjective to in various places, it offers no reason. This is the words of Chief Justice Roberts. It offers no reason at all why the two-person element of the core definition of marriage may be preserved while the man-woman element may not. It is striking how much, and this is not, this is the words of uh, uh, not Chief Justice Roberts, this is my words, essentially. It is very interesting how much of the majority's reasoning, the majority in that Obergfell decision, would apply with the same force to the claim of a fundamental right to plural marriage. If not having the opportunity to marry, and if you want to comment on this, got a new number for today. Take this number down, 833-969-4447, 833-969-4447. If the opportunity to marry... Um, well, not having the opportunity to marry, serves to disrespect and subordinate gay and lesbian couples, why wouldn't the same imposition be disrespectful to polyamorous relationships? I think legally it would. So in this case, the case we're talking about, this New York case, you have Mr. Robinson, not Mr. Robinson, Mr. Anderson, Mr. Romano, and Mr. O'Neill. They had a relationship to one another. There was knowledge of all persons about the others. And at least, you know, as far as we could tell, consent, even if they didn't always get along with one another. So was the relationship a good one? It's tough to say. Mr. Romano describes Mr. O'Neill as intimidating. O'Neill describes Romano as abusive. It seems unimportant as considering... Um, sexual relations to delve into the level of happiness in a relationship because there's a lot of unhappy two relationships with two people is one stripped of their rights to marital property on the basis of having a bad marriage. No. So would non eviction protections not devolve to an emotionally abusive spouse? Of course they would. So uh, I think this is very, very interesting. And uh, I am eager to see what happens next with this. We will see where this goes. But this is a whole new chapter as far as I'm concerned. And it's going to be very interesting to see where this goes. All right. Uh, 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Diamonds. Uh, did you hear this year Rihanna is going to be performing at the Super Bowl? So that's going to be very interesting. The Super Bowl halftime show. I don't think she's come out with a new album in, I think, about five or six years. It's been a while. And so now she is going to headline the uh, NFL halftime show at the Super Bowl. And this year's halftime show is not going to be sponsored by Pepsi, as it normally is. Instead, this year it's going to be sponsored by Apple. And it's very, very interesting. That sparked a whole bunch of articles today, or when this was announced, about the history of Apple and the Super Bowl and how they've been intertwined over the years. You remember that famous, and I'm very familiar with it because I just saw that Steve Jobs movie, one of the many Steve Jobs movies. I just saw that Steve Jobs movie the other day uh, where, remember that commercial talking about and promoting the Macintosh and it's a Ridley Scott directed commercial and it says, um, you know, hope find out why 1984 won't be like 1984, meaning the book 1984 has got a whole Orwellian theme that debuted at the Super Bowl. So uh, it's very interesting that Apple, as they try to go to this next phase, they are again going to the Super Bowl to do it. So we'll see what happens. All right. Um, have you have you been following any of these um, any of these stories involving Adam Levine? Adam Levine is uh, he's a big singer with Maroon Five. No, actually, not a bad actor either. I saw a couple of the a couple of the uh, films that he had done that were that were interesting, and it seems like a likable guy. Um, I have pretty much ignored all this stuff, but as I understand it, you have a situation where Adam Levine is apparently guilty of sending flirtatious messages to people. This is a headline. This was in page six over the weekend. Fitness model, 21, 21, is fifth woman to claim Adam Levine sent her flirty messages. This is the article in page six. A fifth woman has come forward and claimed Adam Levine struck up a flirty conversation with her 
on social media. Ashley Russell, who runs a fitness Instagram account with over with over 4,100 followers, claimed that earlier this year, the Maroon 5 singers would watch her stories, like her posts, and even message her directly. Speaking to the Daily Mail in a published in an article published on Wednesday, the 21-year-old claimed he would message her almost every day at night around 10 p.m. I would check every time I posted a story, which was every day, and it was always viewed by him. Um, he would, this is a quote, he would like mainly my booty stories and would always reply with something, something to do with leg or booty day at the gym. And in a series of screenshots that captured the alleged conversations between Adam Levine, who's 43, and Ms. Russell, who was 20 at the time, he first wrote her, leg day, the most important and the easiest to skip. Later in their conversation, he allegedly asked her, you're in college, right? Before adding, nice work on legs. Russell told the Daily Mail she thought it was weird that Adam Levine would allegedly talk to her, but she wanted to continue their conversation to see how far she could take him. Can we pause there, okay? A couple of things here. One, why is any of this newsworthy, right? Does anybody in the world care? And I think, you know, Adam Levine is married, as I understand it. But does anyone in the world care who Adam Levine is flirtatiously messaging unless you're his wife? Um, That's number one. Number two, number two, who are these women? This woman was, had no problem flirting with Adam Levine, uh, flirtatiously answering his messages, encouraging him, screenshotting what he was saying, and then running to the press to get attention for herself. And I I just, I'm blown away by this. I'm blown away by the headline, fifth person that Adam Levine uh, exchanges flirty messages with. I'm looking at these messages that she screenshotted in the Daily Mail. I don't think this guy did anything wrong. And yet he is being pilloried all over the Internet as as if he's like a, a, worse than a cheater. I guess because people viewed Adam Levine as so likable before this. Look, is it right to exchange flirtatious messages with, with fans um, that aren't your wife? No, it's not right. This goes on. All the time. And I think this is not at all a big deal. And the press and the public that are out there vilifying Adam Levine for this, I'd be curious to know what's going on in your own life. The women here that have no problem by their own admission trying to see how far it would go in order to trap him and then run to the press I thought the same thing about the uh, several of the Anthony Weiner scandals. Who are these women who are complaining uh, after continuing to trade raunchy messages with him? I mean, I, again, these Adam Levine messages don't seem that raunchy. But this woman, as I said, is now the fifth woman who's come forward with claims against the soon-to-be father of three. The first woman, an Instagram model, said she felt exploited after allegedly having an affair uh, with the Girls Like You singer while he was married. 
She also claimed to Page Six exclusively that uh, she and Levine had a physical relationship after she graduated college. I just, I look, if he cheated on his wife, shame on him. But isn't that between he, the woman that he cheated with, who knew he was married, if that's the case, and his wife? Right? Why do these women run to the media to, I don't know, embarrass him, ruin his reputation? Now, Levine has denied that. He said he did not have an affair, but that he crossed the line. He said he used poor judgment in speaking with uh, anyone other than his wife with any kind of flirtatious manner. This is bogus as far as I'm concerned. 833-969-4447. That's uh, 833-969-4447. Another woman named Allison Rose shared a TikTok video shared in a now-deleted TikTok video a message that Levine sent her that read, I shouldn't be talking to you. You know that, right? Then a comedian named Marika took to her Instagram story on Tuesday to share her direct messages with, with Levine, which read in part, I'm now obsessed with you. Lastly, his former yoga instructor, Alana Zabel, allegedly um, alleged he told his friends, She had the best rear end in town, and it was cute. Quote, one day he texted me saying, I want to spend the day with you naked. Now, um, Adam Levine has not directly addressed the claims of the last four women, just the first, by saying he didn't have an affair with her, but he did speak to her in a manner that he shouldn't. I just, the people running to criticize Adam Levine should step up, should step off their high horse and recognize that this is a guy that probably has thousands, literally thousands, of women um, that look like models or are models messaging him to, um, you know, to do who knows what with. And the fact that they've only found five that claim that he's reciprocated with some mildly flirtatious texts. This, to me, is the biggest non-scandal of the century. And, I, again, I don't care about Adam Levine. I just hate seeing people's reputation be attacked for the kind of conduct that people engage in literally every day and do a lot worse with. If you want to comment, you can. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. A gentleman uh, who is a, a, a budding rock star who probably gets uh, uh, all sorts of invitations from groupies on a daily basis because of his music about mass shootings is uh, Alex Barnard. Uh, Alex, you wanted to weigh in on this. Yeah, I thought um, that the funniest part of this whole thing are the memes that have been generated yeah, so about it. I, I've read that there are memes, but I don't, I don't even really understand what memes are. So fill us in on this. What are these memes? Well, so basically what a lot of people have done is they've uh, taken screenshots of what Adam Levine has sent to um, this one particular girl who I don't I don't know who it is. But the the premise is uh, she sent him a photo, essentially. And then his response was, holy F, holy effing F, that body of yours is absurd. And people on the Internet have now replaced it with pictures like uh, the picture of Elon Musk shirtless. Or like um, there's a rock star that uh, Matt Blaze and I like, uh, Glenn Danzig, who is kind of overweight and uh, bloated at (laughs) in his middle age and, you know, 
have that with his response. These memers are nothing if not creative. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, beyond the memes, do you have any additional comment on this? Well, I mean, I think it's just tacky, you know, more than anything well, else. Well, it's tacky on the part of these women or who? Both. Both. I mean, I mean, m- frankly, mostly Adam Levine. I, I think, you know, if you're, you know, if you're married, doesn't matter how famous you are, you should... You should be committed to the person you're you're married to. Yeah, I, I I agree, but I mean, is what he's sending that bad? I, I don't think so. It's mostly bad because I think it's just again, it's just so laughable about what he's sending to these yeah, people. Yeah, I guess, I guess you so. Know? All right, fair enough. Thank you, thank you, Alex. We'll let you go back to recording your deaf metal. Also, for the record, I'm not sick. By the way, All I right. just wanted to put that out there. I, 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 heard, you know. I heard you coughing. It, I'm clearing my throat. That's not that's no, no, not no, no, sick. No. <clears throat> like William F. Buckley Jr., <laughs> that's clearing your thought, your throat. That that's the kind of cough. That's a cough. What you had, what I heard in that neighboring <laughs> room, that was a cough. All right, no well. throat clearing, and you weren't speaking. So what are you clearing your throat for? You you were sitting there silently doing your job, doing it well, and then you're you're coughing. That's a cough. Well, at least you said I do my job well, so yeah, I appreciate well, that. It's, it's, well, I better be if you're here infecting everyone, <laughs> hacking up a lung. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> Um, but uh, thank you very much for your contribution. Wasn't the, the yoga instructor, he wasn't even married. It was like 12 years ago. Uh, look. Uh, He's I, coming out of the woodwork. This is just crazy. This is this is obscene. It's not even. I, 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 find, I, I just, I never really cared much about Adam Levine before, but I, I'm now becoming a fan of Adam Levine just to stick it to all these people that are rushing to cast judgment on him. You know, it, it's one thing if you want to... Um, attack Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein or even a guy like Matt Lauer or Kevin Spacey. Who actually did something. Yeah, who were like abusing people and harassing people or touching people. Drugging women. This guy, this guy. (laughs) Sending messages. That are barely flirtatious. Again, if if this is cause for getting in trouble, then boy, oh boy. His wife should be happy that's all he's doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're going to give me the electric chair if this is all, uh, if this gets you in trouble. Well, like you just said, there's got to be thousands of women who message Adam Levine on a daily basis that would tell him things, all these kinds of things they would do to him. And this is all that he's doing? This is crazy. Crazy. Like I said, his wife should be happy. And that, she, maybe she is. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I haven't yeah. heard anything from her. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's just it's such a shame. Such a shame. If you want to weigh in, you can. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. We're going to go through the mail uh, in just a moment. If you want to send me a quick email to potentially be included in the mail, you can. Uh, my email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. We'll go through the mail straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Thank you. 
This is Adam Levine singing Girls Like You. Uh, This is um, The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, Let us check our... Our direct messages on Instagram. You can you can direct message me on Instagram at Morano Vision. See if we have anything from Adam Levine. No. All right. Uh, if you ever want to send me a letter, you can do so. Good old fashioned letter, snail mail. Um, you can do so by sending it to the other side of midnight. Attention, Frank Morano, P.O. Box seventeen seventy seven. That's P.O. Box seventeen seventy seven, New York, New York. 10163. That's uh, P.O. Box 1777. Attention, Frank Moreno. New York, New York, 10163. And perhaps you will be, you will see your letter read on a future edition of. I think we need to make a trip to the P.O. Box because we only have one piece of mail today, but I think this is my kind of piece of mail. This is, uh, I don't know if this person wants his name mentioned. Uh, It's David. I don't know if he wants his last name mentioned. He he can message me if he does. I'm happy to mention him. But um, there is a beautiful box of cigars, a nice cigar box, and uh, a a couple of uh, beautiful Arturo Fuentes cigars. These are serious cigars. These are long. Um, these are canones. Uh, these are nice-looking cigars and uh, very flavorful. So I let's open the letter that came with this. Um, Frank, I know of your fondness. For uh, These are Canones Presidente cigars. That's what they are. Okay. I know of your fondness for fine cigars and appreciate the guests you have on from time to time. That's our friend Gary Korb from Cigar Advisor. The guests you have on from time to time to discuss the subject. As I was just reloading the humidor, I thought I would share with you a couple of my favorites. These are a top-of-the-line smoke and should only be sparked up when you have at least an hour to enjoy. As always, only invite your good company over to enjoy. And assuming you read this on the radio and they may be listening, you have now disclosed that there is more than one cigar. So the old, oh, the guy only sent me one, isn't going to work. Smoke in good health and enjoy. I am going to look forward to smoking these. I'm wondering if I could get one in today. I think I have to come in early, I mean, today to do a podcast interview. So I don't know that I can, but I'd like to. If not, maybe... uh, Maybe Friday, maybe Sunday on the front porch. This looks good. You know what I am afraid of? Because I am really going to enjoy this. Um, Ulysses S. Grant was a regular cigar smoker, maybe a heavy cigar smoker. And then after the Civil War, he became became the most celebrated man in America, right? 
Um, and they did a newspaper interview with him, and he was smoking a cigar. And I guess they wrote about it in the newspaper interview. After that, people knew he liked cigars. He ended up getting thousands of cigars sent to him from all over the world, all over the country. And he, he they sent him more cigars than he could ever smoke in a lifetime. So he had this lifetime supply of cigars. And he would just actually end up smoking cigars all day long. That's what I don't want to happen. I've actually stopped buying cigars. So I will keep smoke because I don't want to smoke too much. But Or unless it's a special occasion, I'll pick up some. But if somebody sends um, me a cigar, I will enjoy it. But I don't want to end up like Ulysses S. Grant where I smoke too often. That's uh, Especially being on the radio, it's potentially problematic. All right. To the email we go. Christine writes, hi, Frank. If you ever get tired of what you're doing, but please don't, you'd be a great teacher. You have all the best teacher instincts. You're dynamic and open and fun and smart and curious and lead a great discussion. I could go on. You're also naturally funny. I appreciate when you self-deprecate. It uh, helps relax us. Yes, we realize we can be open about our foibles and still be a good human being. You lead by example. On foibles... I share your habit of collecting too many books and things. But when my husband and I moved in together, I had to shed. I had to shed. I had to shed stuff. He's more like Rachel and only reads library books. Right across the street from where I lived was a housing works. I remember the day I saw something I had donated there, sitting in their window. It looked so pretty and appreciated, getting star-like attention. And I thought, wow, that thing must be happier there than in my dark closet. So I hope that helps. It's hard and an ongoing challenge, especially the books. Thanks for all the work you do for your show, Christine. That's awfully nice, Christine. Thank you. It's a very kind letter. Um, this is from Jeff. Uh, subject, quick compliment. My admiration of you and your fair and easygoing personality always goes up a notch when I hear someone like E. Frank or Tom from the Bronx call in, I cringe when I hear those people talking about nothing. And all I can think of is how Bob Grant would respond with get off my radio. Now, I was a big fan of Bob Grant. And I got a big kick out of when he'd yell at E. Frank and Tom from the Bronx. I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. But that's Bob's style, right? It's not mine. You know, the thing is, when Bob started doing that, everybody on the radio was like John Gamboy, right? A total gentleman... Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, or Barry Farber, right? Wouldn't dream of saying a crossword. So when Bob started doing that, it was so new and so innovative. Now, everything I hear on the radio, not everything, but so much of what I hear on the radio is so mean spirited and so negative that I think to be nice to someone, things have come so full circle that now if you're nice to people, most of the time, um, that's the rare thing these days. So I appreciate that. All right. Uh, Christopher and Eric both sent me the same question via email. Marriage. When, what about when you officiate a wedding? Do you say, do you take you and you and you and you? And Eric basically asked the question, what about you as a marriage officiant? What would you do? The answer is, um, if I met all three or four or however many consenting adults and I found them to be consenting and going into the situation with their eyes open, I would have no problem officiating a uh, polygamous marriage. No problem. None at all. As long as, look, if, if 
if a guy is trying to marry two 17-year-olds, then uh, I maybe have a little bit of a hesitation. But I'd have to cross that bridge when I came to it. Gerald writes, polygamous marriages? All I can say is it reminds me of Curtis with 19 cats. Too much! But then the film Jules and Jim... (laughs) Jean Moreau et al. I never saw Jules and Jim, but uh, I have seen other films that deal with polygamy, including uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Although that's more swingerism than uh, than polygamy. So that's that. All right. Um, a couple other questions I want to try and get in here. Uh, Ellen. Writes, hi, Frank. I was just thinking about your shows. I'm looking for negative emails here. Uh, I was just thinking about your shows, your guests, your interviewing style, your sense of humor, and your incomparable ability to spin a tale. But one thing I never commented on but have uh, appreciated for some time is the way in which you introduce your guests. You don't just recite a boring laundry list of someone's accomplishments, but you have the ability to weave those accomplishments into a unique Introduction, always with an unusual hook. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Ellen. I actually uh, really was inspired to do that by uh, Joe Franklin or and Barry Farber. Those were my two favorite introducers. Those were... Uh, th- I would watch Joe Franklin and listen to Barry uh, Farber just for the introductions of the guests. I w- was a guest on Barry Farber's radio show a couple times. I think you'd still find those interviews on the internet somewhere. And when he would introduce me, I would I thought he was talking about somebody else. He was going on and on and on and on. But um, I used to really take so much pride in that, and I actually used to write the introductions out. I don't do that anymore, though. It's kind of whatever comes to me at the, uh, at the time. Uh, Gary sends me a message on Facebook, and you can too, at facebook.com slash moranofan. What is the most frightening interview you ever did? I don't know that any of the interviews I've ever done have been frightening. I've never really been frightened. So the, uh, inter- there are interviews that have could have could have gone better than I would have uh, th- than I would than they actually did. But I don't know that any of them I would characterize as frightening, Gary. I'm sorry I can't give you a uh, better answer there. Roger writes in response to us playing the Space Force theme the other day. And he's exactly right. I wish I would have thought of this at the time we played it because so, we could have done a comparison. The Space Force anthem sounds like, Here I Come to Save the Day, the theme song to Mighty Mouse. He's exactly right. It does. I'll tell you what we're going to do. After the top of the hour, we're going to do a side-by-side comparison of the Mighty Mouse theme and the Space Force theme and tell me if you agree. All right. Uh, that's all we have time for on this edition of... Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, uh, your influence counts. So you might as well use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, bunch of things I want to get to this hour, and we will. Uh, we will. No guests this hour, so plenty of time for me to rant. Plenty of time for you to call in on anything that we have discussed over the preceding three hours. If you want to do so, you can do so at 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. A new number today. So uh, hopefully, I don't know if we're going to have our old number tomorrow or whatever the case may be. And so far, it's working pretty well. 833-969-4447. All right. Um, As indicated, the gentleman, I believe his name was Roger, that brought up the similarities between the Space Force theme and the Mighty Mouse theme, why don't we give a call and see what we think, right? Let me first hear the Space Force theme. Can we hear the Space Force theme, Matt Blaze? Brand new. Every branch of the military has a theme. I love this. Makes me wanna, this makes me feel patriotic and want to watch an episode of Star Trek simultaneously. What makes me want to watch Star Trek while wearing red, white, and blue. Love this. All right, very good. So that is the Space Force theme. Let us hear now, if we can, uh, Matt Blaze, the theme song to the classic television program, Mighty Mouse. Mr. Trouble never hangs around when he hears this mighty sound. Come to save the day. That means that Mighty Mouse is on the way. Yes, sir, when there is a wrong to right, Mighty Mouse will join the fight. On the sea or on the land. I gotta say, I, I think it sounds pretty similar. I think it sounds patriotic. Yeah, it does. But I don't know that it, it's just the patriotic style. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. You know what I mean? It's but, not the same rhythm, but the Army really. song and the uh, Marine song, those sound patriotic, but I don't think they sound like the Mighty Mouse song. Can we do this, Matt Plays? Can we play both the Mighty Mouse theme song and the Space Force theme song simultaneously and see how that kind of harmonizes? Let's see how that works. Yeah, try, do, do what you can. Do, you work, do your magic. Here. Let's see how this goes. Mr. Krabble never hangs around <laughs> when he hears this. See, this is good. Sound. That means that Mighty Mouse is on the way. Yes, sir, when? This is perfect. I lo- you know, if we ever send an army of genetically modified mice into space to destroy our enemies... This is what that scene that this is what that theme song should be. You know, it, the Mouse Brigade. I remember when my son was a month old, and you know, my wife knows that in our house, Saturday morning at nine a.m., everything stops so that I can watch Smirconish on CNN. Everything stops Saturday morning at nine a.m. I don't care what everybody's doing. Who's over? CNN goes on so I can watch Smirconish, and. My wife said to me, and this might have even been before Carmine was born. She said to me, what are you going to do if, um, you know, when when Carmine is five or something and he wants to watch Saturday morning cartoons? What if he comes and says, oh, daddy, you know, I want to watch Mouse Brigade. And I said, what's Mouse Brigade? She said, it's not anything. I just made that up. I said, that's great. That sounds like the kind of children's cartoon I would watch. Um, 
we should have a mouse brigade, right? I don't care if it's real or fictional, but this army of mice, super smart mice, because as we know, if you've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mice are the smartest human beings on Earth, not humans who have always thought they were the smartest. Humans are only the third smartest species on Earth. It's mice, dolphins, humans. And um, I would love to see the Mouse Brigade use that hybrid of the Mighty Mouse theme and the Space Force theme. Curious what you think It is a song. What is? The Mouse Brigade. It's from the Nutcracker. Oh, really? Yeah. It's the Nutcracker, the Mouse Brigade. I just looked it up. I know, but it's not a cartoon. No, but there might be a little legal aspect of that. No, Nutcracker's got to be public domain by now. So no? you can just use the name Mouse Brigade. Yeah, why cookie. not? Right? The Mouse Brigade. I, I like it, right? Wouldn't you watch the Mouse <laughs> I Brigade? Would. I yeah, would. You know, I never see Mighty Mouse on television anymore. I, I don't know what the deal is with that. Uh, I don't know why it's never on. I, I see a lot of other classic cartoons. I don't see uh, Mighty Mouse. And the but, Nutcracker is, in fact, public domain. Yes! Now, how about that? What, what if we should look at putting on our own performance of the Nutcracker. We'll we'll work on that. We'll work on that. I am from Staten Island, after all, right? Uh, 833-969-4447 if you want to comment on the similarities, as observed by Roger, of the Mighty Mouse theme song and the Space Force song. 833-969-4447. Or our idea, as inspired by Rachel Morano, of a new children's television program called the mouse brigade 833-969-4447 now speaking of young people these young people it's bad enough they're ruining everything they are now poised to ruin the world of entertainment a fascinating article a column really in the new york post over the weekend by johnny olexinski who is their film critic over at the post and he says generation z More like Generation Buzzkill. Generation Z are, um, they're people, I guess, under the age of 18. And there was a new study from UCLA, and they questioned Generation Z children between the ages of 13 and 18. Um, People born between 2004 and 2009 about their viewing habits. And the conclusion is, based on this survey, is that enjoy watching anything fun and flighty that's over 90 seconds long while you still can because Generation Z is about to kill it. If the trends persist, a lot of our favorite films and television programs will go. Will be, as Johnny Olegzinski says it, Rarer than a unicycle on the highway or a New York street corner that doesn't reek of marijuana. I thought that was pretty clever. The youth don't want to see films like Elvis and Avatar. They want to see TikTok dances. They want to see memes. They want to see screeds about social justice. Um, The study notes that teens resoundingly rejected aspirational stories at meaning kind of enjoyable films about frivolous people who are wealthier than they are. Costume, musical comedies like Anything Goes or costume dramas like Downton Abbey. Those are out. Instead, the Generation Zers claim to prefer depressing real-life stories chock full of relevant issues. 
uh, Euphoria on HBO and things of that nature. Sex Education on Netflix is a show that grapples with teenage sexual identity issues. That's what the Generation Z years want. Anything fun and anything that's long, that's on the way out. Make way for the Generation Z years. Do you find that this tracks? Do you, if you know someone between the age of 13 and 18, that's going to be now the future. That's who Hollywood studios are going to make things to appeal to. Do you think that we're, we have to worry if you're fans of things like The Godfather or Citizen Kane? 833-969-4447. Give us a call. Let us know. That is, of course, if these young people are actually even watching TV at all. A 2021 Deloitte survey found that just 10% of Generation Zers ranked those pastimes as their number one, meaning TV, as their number one home entertainment pick. Unlike every other previous generation, which picked television, these Generation Zers prefer things like social media, web browsing, and video games. Over the last few years... um, We heard all these stories about doom scrolling, right? We heard all these stories about angry online disputes and forgetting how to talk to other human beings in person. A lot of um, a lot of adults are worried about some of the trends in Generation Z. But this is one that will actually eventually affect you if you care about watching anything that's longer than 90 seconds. So Generation Z wants to jam the knife in even further, staring at their phones all day, obsessing over the news And looking upon fun, as this post column says, as repellent and evil. Now, it is possible that these young people will grow out of this, right? It is possible that one day they will enjoy watching things that are longer than 90 seconds, watching things on a television screen or on a motion picture screen rather than on a four-inch screen on their mobile phone. But if these trends persist... This is cause to concern for those of us like uh, like me who enjoy a good motion picture. Longer the better. When- I think things have to stay fast-paced. I mean, they talk about the MTV generation. It was all quick editing and flashy. And I think as long as things stay fast-paced, they could deal with it being longer. Because I've noticed myself that I've watched movies that I watched as a kid that I loved. And I watch them now, and I'm like, "Wow, this is so slow." But you're not Generation Z. You're not. You're not. You're not. But I'm saying it's just a trend that that as you're growing older, things change. So I think they will change just like. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Well, very interesting. So you don't think this is much of a cause for concern as Johnny Alexinsky does? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, be curious. What uh, are you, Generation Z, uh, Mr. Uh, Kenneth? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what are what are your listening and, and viewing habits? Um, I'm a big big movie guy. Oh, and, you are. Yeah, and so I love the classics too. Godfather. I mean, Schindler's List is almost like a four hour movie. So if you could sit through that, I well, mean, I mean, but do you? Do you? Yeah, sit no, through I, that? exactly. I and do, what about yeah. your peers? Do your peers sit through it? Um, I'd say I have some friends that love movies too. Yeah, but I I've noticed it is a lot of streaming services, like you said, Euphoria. Like everybody talks about that. Stranger Things. Like it's a lot. Of, streaming services have definitely taken over, and like shows rather than movies. But what I feel about like. what about this claim that they don't like 
kind of flighty aspirational stories that that they instead prefer, you know, heavier things like euphoria and things like that. I mean, so Johnny Oleksinski ends his column by saying, meanwhile, you and I will regale our grandchildren with stories of comedies and science fiction while they cancel us on Snapchat, which I thought was very clever. <laughs> do, do the young people not like comedies and Snapchat? I mean, not comedies and science fiction. I mean, I guess not. I feel like TikTok is like this generation's form of comedy. Yeah. Well, that's lame. It uh, is lame. 833-969-4447. We have four open lines. So uh, if Kenneth deems you fit, and let's face it, Kenneth has a pretty low bar uh, when it comes to f- uh, fitness for callers, uh, you will be pr- placed in the queue. So we'll, we'll get you right on. 833-969-4447 if you want to comment on this. Meantime, you know Jake Tapper? Jake Tapper is an interesting guy. Jake Tapper, um, he is, he's on CNN, and CNN is sort of in the midst of trying to reinvent itself. And they announced that, at least for a while, uh, Jake Tapper is is going to get the primetime slot that was formerly occupied by Chris Cuomo. And uh, Jake Tapper, I've noticed over the last couple of years, has been, I think he's been a very good, hard-hitting journalist, right? Uh, Doesn't always say things that I agree with, but nobody does. I think he's done some good interviews, asked a lot of tough questions. I think he's given some good commentary. And I remember Jake Tapper, this this was two years ago, in the midst, at the height of and I don't even want to say Andrew Cuomo's popularity. It was Andrew Cuomo's deification. Andrew Cuomo, it's difficult to imagine now because he's disgraced, but two years ago, Andrew Cuomo, they were going to take Lincoln off Mount Rushmore and put Andrew Cuomo's head up there on Mount Rushmore. People were glued to his press conference. People were fawning on social media over Andrew Cuomo. Oh, I wish Andrew Cuomo was running for president. Oh, Biden should pick Andrew Cuomo for vice president. People were having these Cuomasms, just falling over themselves how great he was. And then he did just this ridiculous poster. This poster, I I just, I can't even believe that I'm describing this. But he did this ridiculous poster describing all of his accomplishments during the COVID pandemic. And I remember watching this. And I said, wait, wait a minute. I, f- I felt like I was in the emperor has no clothes. The governor has no clothes. Um, th- I'm saying, wait a minute. New York lost more people to COVID than anybody. What is this guy walking around taking a victory lap for? He actually came out with a poster. And this was at the time that Chris Cuomo was on CNN praising Andrew and so forth, interviewing him all the time, do, doing all these jokey interviews with him. Hello, this is Governor Andrew Cuomo. And Jake Tapper was one of the few voices on CNN that came out and talked about how absurd this was. New York's Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, seems to be on something of a victory tour, congratulating the state and himself for 
defeating the virus, even selling this poster, which shows his state getting over the mountain by bringing down the curve during the 111 days of hell, as the governor put it. The poster includes references to his daughters and a boyfriend, little inside jokes. There are no illustrations, however, of the more than 32,000 dead New Yorkers, the highest death toll by far of any state. No rendering on that poster of criticism that Governor Cuomo ignored warnings, no depiction of the study that he could have saved thousands of lives had he and Mayor de Blasio acted sooner. No painting there on the poster of his since rescinded order that nursing homes take all infected patients in. Look, I know a lot of New Yorkers are happy that the infection numbers are down and, you know, we all hope that they stay down. But let's be clear, this is revisionism. And a lot of the crowing and Governor Cuomo going on late night is, is offending a lot of New Yorkers. I remember when Jake Tapper made those comments. I said, yeah, why is no one else saying that? So I, I don't watch um, Jake Tapper routinely, but a lot of times he does do a, a lot of the journalism that I think we need more of. So CNN supposedly under their new ownership with John Malone, under their new boss, Chris Licht, who used to work here, they are in the midst of trying to reinvent themselves instead of being a network that is known for left-wing commentary. Instead, they're trying to rebrand themselves as a news network that uh, this is revolutionary. I don't know that anyone's ever tried this before. They're trying to rebrand themselves as a network that covers, you ready for this? News. Instead of just commentary. And as part of that, Instead of giving the Chris Cuomo slot to another, you know, left-wing ideologue, they're giving it to Jake Tapper. And the viewers of CNN are going crazy. A lot of the viewers uh, ripped CNN's promotion of Jake Tapper, and they're actually claiming that the what they describe as a shift in Tapper's reporting from left-leaning to more centrist and conservative-friendly, it it amounts to pandering and kissing up to his new bosses. Um, This is what one media source said. Tapper is trying to survive. He's kowtowing to his bosses. He's very ambitious and hardworking with a healthy ego, according to another source, source who had once worked with Tapper. Well, are there a lot of TV news anchors that are not ambitious and that don't have a healthy ego? What kind of comment is that? Um, And the New York Post pointed out that during Trump's tenure, Tapper emerged as a critic of Trump. New York Times called him a staunch defender of the, the facts in a Trump era. Well, good. You should be a defender of the facts in any era. But under Chris Licht, the anchor has recently made some overtures to the right, including suggesting that President Biden invite Trump to join the American delegation to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth in England. I think that would have been a nice thing. And I think it's a great idea. I think it's great that Jake Tapper said it in May. Tapper raised eyebrows when he cut off a White House advisor who blamed high gas prices on Vladimir Putin. Well, I got news for you. That White House advisor was lying. And last month, he shared an article on Twitter written by Selena Zito, who's been a guest on this program, a uh, columnist for the New York Post and the Washington Examiner, who's generally considered conservative, about the race for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Oh, my goodness. 
He shared a column written by Selena Zito. Let's get him off television right away. So one of his liberal viewers on Twitter wrote, Jake drank the Kool-Aid. Another one says, this isn't journalism. This is pandering to the new boss. I assumed you were one of the good ones. I am just blown away at this. I think the fact that Jake Tapper is willing to be a little independent and sometimes say things that upsets liberals and sometimes say things like uh, that upset conservatives, that's what everybody should do. I think this is great. Now, my first choice for that um, CNN slot at 9 p.m. would have been Michael Smirkanish, but I think this is a much better solution than um, what we've seen before on CNN and what could have been there. So I think this is just great. Um, One person writes, don't watch Jake Tapper on CNN, just don't. He's taking the lead with Chris Chris Licht as reputation defenders of Trump and MAGA. No, he's not. No, he's not. I think if you would ask uh, Jake Tapper his opinion on Donald Trump or Trump supporters, I don't think he'd necessarily say anything positive. So that's that. Uh, 833-969-4447. It's 833-969-4447 if you want to comment. Uh, We've got a new phone number tonight, so take note of that. 833-969-4447. Not getting a lot of calls today. I'm assuming that's because people are having difficulty acclimating to the new phone number. It could be because I'm saying it too quickly. That's 833-969-4447. But um, do you remember when CNN would routinely broadcast this voice? This is CNN, a network of Turner Broadcasting System. That's right. For years, that's what you would hear if you would tune in to CNN. Uh, You would hear that... This is CNN, a network of Turner Broadcasting System. The most famous voice in the world, James Earl Jones. Just got a theater named for him here in New York, a Broadway theater. Well, James Earl Jones is also very well known as the voice of... Your power is a weak old man. Darth Vader. You know, it's interesting. You know who was originally going to be the voice of Darth Vader? I'm going to blow your mind with this. I hope I'm remembering this little tidbit accurately, because if if I am not remembering it accurately, then I'll be very embarrassed. But the original voice of Darth Vader on Star Wars was supposed to be another one of the most famous voices in history. Orson Welles. Orson Welles. But I I don't know if it was George Lucas who felt this way or other people. They felt that Orson Welles' voice was too well known. So viewers would keep picturing Orson Welles. Can you imagine that? They picked James Earl Jones as the voice back in 1977 because they didn't feel his voice was as well known as Orson Welles. I I think that's just wild. So. Um, They go with James Earl Jones, and he has been the voice of Darth Vader since 1977. He was the voice of Darth Vader in all three of the original trilogy. And then uh, when Darth Vader emerged in the the prequel trilogy and then uh, a bunch of other incarnations of Star Wars, he has been the voice. Well, now James Earl Jones, who has for decades voiced Darth Vader, will not record any more new lines for the Star Wars project. The James Earl Jones era as Darth Vader is over. 
over. So, does that mean you'll never get to hear Darth Vader sound like this again? You do not yet realize your importance. You have only begun to discover your power. Join me, and I will complete your training. With our combined strength, we can end this destructive conflict and bring order to the galaxy. I'll never join you! If you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough! He told me you killed him. I am your father. Well, no. You will still be able to hear that voice. Well, wait a minute. How's that possible? How is James Earl Jones retiring as Darth Vader and his? you'll still get to hear his voice? Well... James Earl Jones's voice will live on on it's going to live on artificially through an AI program that can recreate his voice. So Darth Vader can deliver new lines of dialogue and maintain the commanding bass sound that made him a widely feared Villain, Ukrainian startup Respeecher was tasked with creating a version of James Earl Jones' voice as it sounded in the original trilogy for the recent Disney Plus miniseries Obi-Wan Kenobi. I didn't see this because I don't have Disney Plus and because I don't have time to watch all these shows. It takes place several years after Anakin Skywalker becomes a Sith Lord. And James Earl Jones last recorded a voice cameo for the film The Rise of Skywalker. The actor signed off on this plan by Lucasfilms to continue to use his voice for Vader in the years to come through archival recordings and new dialogue created through AI. Isn't that wild? So look, James Earl Jones is 91. I hope he lives forever. I love James Earl Jones. But... This means that J- their Darth Vader is going to be creating new lines that sound exactly like James Earl Jones forever, forever, long after James Earl Jones dies. You will still hear Darth Vader sound like this. We've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Now, this also raises some ethical questions about acting and things of that nature. I mean, let's say, let's say, um, let's say I die, right? God forbid. I hope I don't, I mean, we're all going to die, but I hope I don't die anytime soon. Let's say I die. And the radio network that I'm on still wanted to continue to use my voice. They could use this Ukrainian AI app to create my voice. Now, I don't think they could have it think like me, but let's face it. You hear this show, you know I'm not doing that much thinking to begin with. I am sober, right? See, that could be the new voice of the other side of midnight. I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Best Um, dog food I have ever eaten. 833-969-4447. But think about it. If you're an actor, you do one picture, they pay you for one picture, your character's a big... You know, you know what the perfect example is? Nev Campbell in Scream. Nev Campbell 
doesn't um, she's not coming back for the Scream sequel. She's been in the last five or uh, five films, and they could have her be a voice in the new Scream sequel. Now I'm sure there's intellectual property rights issues, and I'm sure there's other legal issues. But let's say Nev Campbell dies, they could still use her as and her voice through AI. And I'm curious how people feel about that. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. David is in the Bronx. David, what's on your mind? Oh, hey, Frank. I was going to make a comment about uh, Jake Tapper, but I find this uh, current topic a little bit more interesting. Um, What I think is that um, this is basically intellectual property that we're talking about. Like your voice, for instance. So even if, God forbid, you were to like leave us permanently, the uh, estate, your wife or child, would still own the rights to your voice, your digital voice, if it's being reproduced and, and used in in substitute for you, which is what I think they're doing with James L. Jones, even though he's still alive. I mean. I could see this being done in the future where you have holographic projections of people right. that, are, that are long gone. Right, me like too. Like Eddie Davis and Joan Crawford could be doing buddy movies in the future. You know, their voices, their images. I mean, this is fascinating when you think about it. I mean, Well, didn't, the, didn't they do that with one of the, um, the Star Wars films with uh, the, the actor that played, um, you know, Grand Moff Tarkin? Yeah, no, 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 no. Oh, but but Princess Leia had recently passed away. But Grand Moff Tarkin, um, you know, he had passed away years before, and they brought him back for a whole film. I think it was The Force Awakens. They brought him back and recreated him holographically. It looked kind of weird, but um, they they brought him back and put him in that film just as if he was a regular character. No, they are capable of doing that. I mean, the other I didn't see those Star Wars movies because they came out after I lost my vision. But the, the the three prequels, they used a lot of CGI that was basically like um, – take that um, Christopher Lee, the lightsaber scenes with him. That, that wasn't him really. Right, that sure. was just his face superimposed over a computer image. I mean this is basically the wave of the future, and it makes me think that maybe actors are being compensated too much because – it seems like it, not far from now, we're not going to be seeing very much of the actual actors. It's all going to be CGI. Now we have the voice factor coming in. So how much of acting is going to be real acting? That, that's it's a very interesting dilemma, I think. Well, thank you, David. It is interesting. AI, we've, we've talked about the implications for the art world. Now we're talking about the implications of AI when it comes to motion pictures. And who knows what's next, right? I mean, uh, you're seeing this all over the place. And on the one hand, it's exciting because you could do different things, right? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing a new film. You know, wouldn't you love to see John Wayne co-star with Marlon Brando and Orson Welles in a new film? Well, I mean, I don't think we're far off from being able to do that. You know, uh, there's a story, and I've told this story before. I won't belabor the point. There's a story about um, what happened after September 11th. And one of the most interesting things, and if I ever produce a movie, this might be the movie I produce. Another, not a documentary, but a narrative. I might, there's a story, nobody knows if it's true, but in my mind, it has to be true. It has to be true because it's too good of a story not to have occurred. On September 11th, Michael Jackson was in New York getting ready for his comeback concert. 
and he was with two of his best friends, Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor. And obviously, the concert was canceled when the terrorists attacked the World Trade Center. So they had to get out of New York, get back to California. But there were no flights. So what did they do? Well, apparently, and who knows if this is true, but apparently the three of them rented a car in New York and drove to Ohio. And Michael Jackson and Marlon Brando split the driving and Elizabeth Taylor stayed in the back. And they drove to Ohio and they were able to get a plane in Ohio. Wouldn't you love to see that film? Now, I would love to see that film with actors. But you imagine doing it with one of these AI creations? Wouldn't that be something? Brando, Michael Jackson, and Elizabeth Taylor in a story about their journey? I, I, I'd pay real money to see that. And they've done that with Michael Jackson. They did a hologram. Yeah. The Billboard Music Awards in 2014 of, of a performance. And they also did it with Tupac at Coachella in 2012. No, 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 absolutely. It's so becoming, they're doing it. And the technology's getting uh, better and better. Ray is in Riverdale. Hello, Ray. Ray, how Hello? are you? Hey, Ray, what's on your mind? Good, yeah. sir. Uh, listen, uh, as far as James Earl Jones having been, been the actor forever, he wasn't the original Darth Vader. The original Darth Vader was a British actor by the name of David Prowse. No, 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 no. James but Earl David Prowse was never the voice of Darth Vader, though. He he was. He was, oh. he was the original voice. He was the first one. James Earl Jones took it over. Okay? And uh, everybody's familiar with James Earl Jones' voice. But why couldn't you get an actor who can make it, make him sound like James Earl Jones, the same type of cadence and rhythm? And, and you know, James Earl Jones has a unique voice, of course. But if you watch the first episode, you'll see it's a different I, I, see, Ray, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think there's any version of Star Wars that was ever released theatrically or any other version that has David Prowse voicing any of the lines of Darth All Vader. Right, look, at, look it up. He was the original one. And he was also, no. just so you know, my, one of my personal favorite movies was Clockwork So Orange, and he was in that movie. Okay, yeah, the, I, I know because of his accent, they thought that he, they had trouble hearing him, and uh, they called him Darth Farmer. But um, I don't think uh, I don't think the plan was ever to have him voice the uh, voice vo- voice the character Ray. I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, that that was never the uh, ne- never you know never the plan. Um, but uh, you know Jones, James Earl Jones really relied on David Prowse's acting ability because um, he always defers to him still as the true Darth Vader. He's the guy in the suit by the way, for those films. But even with his hand-picked choice, George Lucas was very much still in the process of figuring out what worked and what didn't work. And, um, you know, there was an interview with the American Film Institute. James Earl Jones even went into some detail about the director giving him notes on how to maintain that mystique they'd built in the first movie in Empire Strike Back. And... Um, He said, naturally, I wanted to make Darth Vader more interesting, more subtle, more psychologically oriented. He said, no, no. What we're finding out is that you've got to keep his voice on a very narrow band of inflection because he ain't human, really. So I don't think, um, you know, I think David Prowse's accent kind of ruled him out pretty early on. Very quickly, Paul in Staten Island. What's on your mind, Paul? Hello? Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? 
<laughs> Sorry about that, Frank. <laughs> hey, I was t- um, Darth Vader's voice. Uh, this is the only case that I'm for AI. You can never replace uh, his voice because even with the spinoffs that are coming out, your Mandalorian, you have uh, you know Obi Wan. His voice should never be replaced. I'm I'm really a little bothered that uh, he's he's not going to be doing it anymore. But as far as AI goes, AI, I mean that you you remember the um, the video of Elon Musk warning us about AI and then the, the interviews that were done with that robot. Have you seen that? Uh, yeah, that AI robot. Yeah. No, I have. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with yeah, you on that, Paul. Scary. Both hands. Yeah, it is scary. It certainly is. Thank you, Paul. Um, so apparently, and maybe this is where Ray got his information from. The problem with what George Lucas did in Star Wars is that George Lucas didn't tell David Prowse that he wasn't going to be using his voice. So Prowse went through the process of doing these lines thinking that his voice was going to be used. So David Prowse did an interview about 10 years ago, and he said he he described the whole situation as feeling underhanded. It's a shame because... um, the comparison between Prouse and James and James Earl Jones, you know, it, it sounds it's pretty funny, actually, from what I'm told. So but uh, I don't think David Prouse was ever going to voice the voice Darth Vader. And I don't think there was anything of him in the film. Uh, there might be some outtakes or something, but I don't think there's anything that's been ever released with David Prouse as Darth Vader's voice. So, hey, thousand uh, dollar minute straight ahead. You want to be the seventh caller to eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. Dial now. That's eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Wanted by David Cassidy and the Partridge family. I love this song. Absolutely love it. You know who hated this song? David Cassidy. <laughs> he didn't think it was a good song at all. And uh, he hated the idea he had to talk in the middle of it so much that he refused to do it. So um, th- I think they even stopped shooting of the Partridge family so that his manager and agent could talk to him about this. Um, but they put pressure on him until he caved in, and like they say in the movie Get Shorty, sometimes you do your best work with a gun to your head. Um, when it was finished, he begged them not to release it. He said it was horrible, I was embarrassed by it, and I still can't listen to that record. Well, it goes to show you, that's what I know about, uh, about, uh, music, because I think this song is great. You know... I'm no different from anybody else. <laughs> I start each day and I end each night. 
But it gets really lonely when you're by yourself. Now where is love? And who is love? I gotta know. Poor David Cassidy. I'm glad they put you through this. Uh, all right. Uh, without further ado, it is time to see if we can give away $1,000 with... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. All right, let us say hello to our uh, contestant today, Barry in Syosset. Hello there, Barry. Good morning, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. Have you heard this segment before, Barry? Actually, I did, and uh, I'm psyched. All right. Wonderful. Great. Um, uh, So I won't bother reiterating the rules to you if you're up on them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, Frank. Okay. I'm, I'm feeling lucky this year. Wonderful. Good. <laughs> I love it. All right, Barry. Uh, I feel uh, we've, it's been a while since we've had a winner, so I'm, uh, we're about due. So hopefully today's your lucky day. <clears throat> yeah. What early biblical humans were expelled from the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve. What Jewish holiday celebrating the new year began on Sunday? Rosh Hashanah. What British Philadelphia Freedom rock star recently performed at the White House? Elton John. What federal agency is responsible for research in space? The the uh, the Space Force. All right, well, we'll give you that one. We were looking for NASA. Space Force is part of the military. No, we can't give it to him. Okay, Matt Blaze said we can't give it to you. All right, Barry. Sorry, it's NASA. NASA is responsible for research in space. You know why I felt felt bad for him, though, Matt? Because we've been talking all about Space Force. You well, might have thought we were giving him a clue or something. Possibly, but that's the whole point of the game. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I. I and you know what? It's there was, NASA. There was so much NASA news yesterday with this asteroid and with the hour that we did right. on it. I mean, we know it's it's not Space Force is new, and it's, it's a branch of the military. Yeah. It's research is NASA. That's true. Space Force is not doing any research. Um. And by the way, just an update onto one of the questions I asked Doctor Sky. I said, and I was completely wrong. That Russia doesn't have a space force, as far as we know. I was absolutely wrong. Did a quick, uh, quick bit of homework during the break. The world's first space force was, in fact, the Russian space forces, established in 1992 as an independent military services. So they were almost 30 years ahead of us with a space force. So I felt bad. Barry seemed like a great guy. Um, send him something nice, Kenneth, and uh, make sure you put his prize winner winning into. Uh, V promo, so he doesn't doesn't lose out. All right, um, you know what one one of my many problems is. I get interested in an article, or not even an article necessarily, but research, and I open a tab on my computer, and I just keep it open. I keep it open until I can get to it. But it's almost like my book problem. I open so many tabs. That I open, I open these articles faster than I can read them. So I end up having 50, 60 tabs open at any given time. And there's so many tabs open that I almost can't do anything on the Internet. 
because it's tough to find what web page I want to go to because I have all these tabs open. In fact, my sister, she used my computer to look up something or something the other day. She was she was thrown, she was floored because of the number of tabs I have open. So she said, how do you get anything done with that many tabs? So I, what I've been trying to do is force myself, I, I have a new organizational system where every time I have a list of 14 items to do for the show in any given day, right? One is write the trivia questions. Two is book the guests. Three is promote on social media. Four is write the, not, this is not the order, but four is write the monologues. Five is prepare for the interviews. Six, you know, might be um, prepare the mail. Seven might be, you know, whatever. You know, this, and I, what I've been doing is I, have, I get so many emails. Each time I accomplish a show-related task, I go through 10 emails. So if I have 100 emails unread, if I accomplish one show-related task, I will go through 10 emails. Then I'll do another show-related task and, and go through 10 more emails. What I've been forcing myself to do is in a, every 10 emails that I go through, in addition to a show-related task, and sometimes you know I'll have household-related tasks to do as well, um, by the way, Rachel hates this bifurcated system. She said, uh, you know, uh, she'll say, you know, can you do the recycling? Can you take out the garbage? Can you empty that car? Can you do this? Can you take the air conditioners downstairs to the basement? I said, oh, I, I'll do that, honey, after I finish this show-related task and 10 emails. And she'll say, no, 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 can't you just do it now and then just do these three things that I'm asking for you now and then do those things later? And I said, no, this is my system. So what I've been doing now Last two days, in order to make some inroads on these tabs that I have open, is I've been adding the process. Uh, I've been adding Google tab or Internet tab to my list. So what I've been doing is show-related task, 10 emails, and then read one of these articles. Now, the reason I haven't gotten to these articles is because the only tabs that I have left open are super long articles. Now, I always feel good after I get to the bottom of the article because I'm well informed by the end of it. But it does take some time. But I'm making my headway through this. So you could kind of tell why my ex-girlfriend thought that I was on the autism spectrum at this point. I'm, I'm listening to myself describe this work process that I have. And even I'm becoming alarmed. All right, uh, 15 seconds of fame. We only have uh, four or five lines today. So uh, call quick, and you'll get you in. Comment on whatever you like for 15 seconds. Call 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Limited amount of uh, lines open. So operators are standing by straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
side of midnight thanks to andy b for this glorious theme song uh this is your opportunity to be heard a new number today if you'd like to be heard for 15 seconds our number is 833-969-4447 that's 833-969-4447 but it is indeed time for the other side of midnight this is 15 seconds of fame. Frank in Blue Mountains. Yeah, eliminate uh, indexes, Frank, and you eliminate market crashes. 833-969-4447. Fred is in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, I sprained my neck the other day and I had to hire a masseuse. It turns out she was a Biden supporter and dyslexic. Boy, did she rub me the wrong way. Oh, 833-969-4447. Jackson in Queens. Yes, I don't like Frank, this new number. Uh, But I would say, you know, in the Confederate War, you know, marriage was very important. And people got married with love and respect towards God. 833-969-4447. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Good morning. Frank, you're the other side of midnight. Curtis, she'd be the right side of midnight. All right. Well, I, I think that's a fair point. Why don't we end it there on that note? That about slams the lid on things for today. If you want to stay in touch, you can do so uh, via email. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. Just a reminder, I am now experimenting with saying no to everything. Um, You know, I forwarded my wife uh, to my wife that exchange that I had with that other gentleman that refused to take no for an answer um, in terms of my participation, attending the Tony Danza thing this week. And... um, she said, you know, you already told them no. If I were you, I just would stop answering. And I'll be honest, I can't do it. Can't do it. Unless I put someone on ignore, uh, which I would have a tough time doing with somebody that, that has that's a friend, I can't just stop answering people. So I'm going to probably go, not probably, I'm going to the Tony Danza thing on uh, on Thursday, and I will let you know how it is. Hopefully I'll see some of you there. That's the plan. So, All right, uh, tomorrow's big day anniversary of our show and anniversary of our wedding. We'll have highlights from both and low lights, right? Of both. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. It's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, Nick Pope is going to be here tomorrow. We'll talk some UFOs and some other things. Frank Morano, good day. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.